Hello, and welcome back to Metastation for our recap of episode 507, Acceptable Losses. I'm Claire. I'm a writer in Portland, Oregon. I'm Erin. I'm an English professor in Mississippi. And we have a we have a ton of stuff to discuss <laughs> in this episode. It's it's funny, you know, I was thinking like in some ways this episode kind of served as like it was sort of a table setting episode, right? But like mm-hmm. that but not in a way that felt like not like it was stagnant in any way, like like so much shit went down, but it felt like like part of why we were so sort of struggling to figure out like how do how do we talk about this episode? Because so many, like a million plots moved one big step forward, mm-hmm. positioning them for like an even bigger kind of more explosive thing that's about to happen. So like, there's like a lot of ground to cover in all of these different storylines and like all of these different worlds, even though for many of them, we're sort of seeing chess pieces being moved into position for like the next big play. But we want to touch on uh, on all of those things just to sort of check in on on how everything moved forward. So um, so before we kind of get into talking about the sort of storyline by storyline, um, thematically, one thing we wanted to kind of unpack a little bit that I think I think feels like the through line of this episode in some really interesting ways that kind of loops all the storylines together is is this idea that um, that got talked about a lot amongst a couple of the characters in Polis about the breaking of cycles, the sort of naming and identifying a pattern that you're trapped in so that you can do something, you know, pivot and do something crazy and big and unexpected and kind of like throw yourself out of that. And I think we saw that all of the all the sort of big relationships and big storylines and stuff that moved forward in this episode largely did so because somebody did something that was not what everyone around them expected them to do. Like somebody broke a cycle, somebody shifted a pattern. And and I think the fact that it was sort of made textual the way that it was means that we're sort of, that we're meant to be kind of paying close attention to those things, to sort of those unexpected shakeup moments. So, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so it makes sense just because this is sort of the context in which that first comes up. Um, to start by talking a little bit about Jasper and Monty and the letter. Um, how did how did you how did that feel for you when the letter came back? Um, well, I mean, I was really happy to see it come back. I was sort of prepared for that to you know. I was sort of prepared for that never to come back around, or that you know, no, that, me too. That, me too. that it would yeah. be sort of like eventually, like extra textually, the writers would say something like, "Oh, off screen, Clark gave the letter to Monty, and it was very emotional, or whatever." Um, so when uh, you know Maddie left the tent and Clark moved her stuff around, and there were the goggles and the note, I was like, "Oh my god, oh my god, they're there!" I was, I was really happy to see you know that they were coming back into the story, and also, I mean, I think it was sort of there's something sort of. Um, almost like touching and uh, about the fact that these are apparently objects that Clark that Clark just like takes with her, you know, that she, yeah, you know, that she like, had them. Yeah. When uh-huh. she's like packing like the limited amount of stuff that she could carry with her at any given time that, uh, that the goggles and that note would be with her is sort of, I mean, like who knows why, you know, like the goggles obviously have some practical purpose, but um, the note, being is sort of like well i mean i guess i guess when she left 
she might have known that she would be seeing Monty if she knew that everybody came back down, you know? So, like, maybe she was, like, bringing it for Monty. But anyway, just the fact that, like, she kept it and she knew where it was. And, like, these are definitely clearly objects that still, like, carry a lot of ongoing meaning for Clark. That was a really sort of lovely surprise. And then to actually get to, you know, hear, get to see Monty react to receiving the letter and kind of getting to see him processing some of that grief that he still has for Jasper, you know, getting to see him sort of like on screen again, think about Jasper and what his death means, what his choice meant, you know, what his his reasoning meant, the way that this kind of like, the way that Jasper, even though he's gone, even though he he killed himself, you know, the way that that, that, that act and that Jasper itself continues to kind of like have ramifications for the people who loved him. I was like, I was, I mean, that's exactly like last season when I was, you know, so upset about the end of Jasper's story. Like, like this is exactly what I was, I sort of wanted to happen to kind of like mm-hmm. give Jasper's suicide ongoing sort of meaning and to capture like, when someone commits suicide, that that is, that that isn't, that's not a, you know, that's not something that happens and then it's over, that that's, that's kind of like an ongoing, you know, it's an ongoing story and it has like these ripple effects that keep going for years and years. So I was really happy that we got to see that. And I was actually really, you know, like one other thing that I was really happy about, we, you know, we got like, we've had all sorts of lovely reunions and the Bellamy Clark reunion was, was great, but I was happy that we got to see a little bit of Clark and Monty's relationship, you know, that we got a yeah. moment. That, you know, that Clark, when she found that letter, she found Monty by himself, you know, that she, she sort of like delivered it to him and they got a moment, you know, like just the two of them to kind of like process what Jasper had meant to them and continues to mean to them and the kind of like the relationship that they had, you know, the fact that they were very important to each other. Um, you know, for that, that year that they were on the ground together. And then they got to have their own little sort of adventure where they like, they, you know, they, they discovered the worms together. It was like, that was something that I, I also didn't really ex- necessarily expect to get, especially like last season, Clark was kind of like so isolated away from the other kind of original delinquents that it was like, it was just like such a nice little thing to be like, oh my God, like Clark and Monty like side plot, you know, like this is like a lovely little yes. gift that, <laughs> that I wasn't necessarily sort of expecting to get. So, um, so all those things I think were very, um, you know, I think they were like nice to see, but then also I think kind of did a lot of character and emotional work, sort of bringing these loops back around and reminding us of the ways that Clark has relationships to people who aren't Maddie and Bellamy, you know what I mean? Like to sort of remind, like she has, she has pre-existing relationships, um, you know, ongoing relationships, connections with these people that go way back and that. And that she's been thinking about them, you know, and that, that she's been thinking about Jasper, you know, that she thought about that letter and she considered reading it. And she thought about Monty when she thought about reading it, you know, I just so, so just kind of from a, from the standpoint of someone who always loves the delinquents and their relationships and, um, and likes when the show remembers its history, you know, and, and also for, from the standpoint of someone who, who really was like craving more time, spent textually considering Jasper and his life and his death and what it means to these characters. I was like very, very, it was sort of cathartic to get that. Although the actual contents of Jasper's note are very 
disturbing. <laughs> uh, right, right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, unsurprising given that was, you know, I mean, obviously we kind of knew from what Jasper had said himself uh, in season four, where, like, what the things that he said sort of explaining his state of mind and his point of view to other characters, we kind of knew that this is, like, basically what happened to Jasper is that he just sort of drew the conclusion from his experiences and, and what he'd seen that, like, life was terrible and humanity was terrible and there was only one thing to do, which was to, like, have as much fun as you could until there was no fun, more fun to be had and then, you know, and then, like, end your suffering. Certainly with... You know, I think, I think for Jasper to write that note, particularly because that's the one that he wrote at the end of season three, right? You know, so. Right. It's like, I think that's, I think it's important that it's like, this is, this is the note for the headspace he was in with the suicide that didn't happen, which had shifted somewhat before the suicide that did. I think just in terms of like, like finding that, like, you know, I'm going to be happy because it's all going to be over soon. And. Like it was like a, like a, there's a bit of a shift, um, mm-hmm. but I think this this mental space that he was in, I think feeding into the storyline they're in now currently felt much darker. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think so. So like season four, Jasper, I think was sort of looking around and thinking like, you know, we're all like scrambling to figure out a, a way to live, any way to keep living, and he was like, if the end is coming, the end is coming, you know. And I think it was sort of a relief for him because he didn't because because existence was becoming so difficult for him but you know like that was it was a slightly different choice but yeah for the for the jasper who had taken the chip and was so relieved to you know have found a way to live without suffering and who had just had all of his suffering returned to him you know and sort of looked around at himself and everyone else and you know and the things that Ali had the the people had done to each other and that Ali had done it, it did make sense that he was in this sort of very dark place where like from his perspective what he saw was human beings know how to do one thing and that's kill each other and destroy everything you know and and I don't want to be a part of that anymore and and so he almost wasn't a part of it anymore and then he was interrupted and and he decided against it. But um, yeah, I have to admit that it was hard hearing that note. You know, I think it's one of those things where, and I think there's like, there's a little bit of a, of a kind of like, I don't know if it's to call it a thematic resonance or just, it seems to me there's a kind of like an emotional parallel, at least in my mind between Jasper's note and Kane's ultimatum to Abby. Yeah. And which is that like, you know, that note, it was, it was really, really hard to hear both because of the, like, just how much pain Monty was going through in reading it, you know, and, and, you know, having to kind of like relive, I think the trauma and grief of losing his best friend, but then also the kind of like new trauma of, reading these, these, you know, these, what would have been at one point, the final words of his best friend and having them be so bleak, you know, like, it was really hard to watch Monty go through that, you know, especially Monty, who's been struggling since they got to the ground, who, who, who never wanted to leave that peaceful place in space and who feels, who's really just sort of like, 
<laughs> is is being thrust unwillingly into this, you know, situation. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um uh but it was also just just to kind of like hear what he was writing and to to be thrust into to imagine the emotional space that Jasper was in, just the incredible amount of darkness and pain that Jasper was in. Like that was really hard, you know, and I think one thing that's really hard about suicide is I mean, I remember, and this is sort of from, from when my father-in-law killed himself. I remember in the aftermath for like weeks and months afterwards, I would sort of, and like, this is a trauma thing, but, um, I would like, I would think about, I would think about it. You know, I would think about what he was, what was going through his mind when he decided to do it. And sometimes I would think about like what actually happened when it happened. And sometimes I would just think about what he was, yeah, like what he was thinking and feeling when he decided to do it. And, and imagining, like, imagining the kind of, like, dark space you have to be in, or, or putting yourself in the dark space you have to be in where, where dying, ceasing to exist is the only way to, is the only tolerable solution, you know, to your pain. Like, I've, I've been there. I've been in that place. And it's really, it's, it's awful, obviously. Um, but I think like there's something different. There's like a slightly different kind of pain in in imagining someone that you love being there. You know what I mean? Like from the outside, thinking about someone that you love reaching that place and being so incapable of seeing any light or any good or any optimism or any chance for change or redemption. You know, like that's the thing when you're there, like you literally like. You, you literally think there's no other solution. There's no other, there's never going to be an up. The only way out is to stop existing. And yeah, it's kind of interesting because having been on both sides of it, I think, you know, there's, it's, it's traumatic in its own way to, to be on the outside and thinking about someone you love feeling that way, you know? And so like, it was hard to hear those words because like, we love Jasper. Like I love Jasper, you know? And like, and I, and thinking about like the Jasper of season one, it was like such a, sweet, goofy, big hearted kid, you know, the fact that he lives so much of his, the last year of his life in that kind of pain is just like really, really painful, you know? So the part of, the part of me that I think sort of, I don't know. So here's the thing. I think in order to cope with that kind of trauma or really any kind of trauma, any kind of like big, horrible thing that happens in your life, whether it be a you know like a physical illness like yours or a loved one's or a mental illness or suicide or whatever like if i think that i think the thing that you need in order to be able to like really actually like process it is you have to figure out a way to give it meaning it has to have some kind of meaning in order to like sort of rec- actually recover from depression, I had to figure out a way for my depression to have some kind of meaning. So it wasn't just like this thing that ate six months of my life or a year of my life. I had to find some way to give that six months or that year meaning. So it wasn't just nothing, you know, like, like seriously, that was a huge part of my recovery was just being like, this thing happened to me. You know, I lived through it. If it was for nothing, if it was just terrible, I can't deal with that, you know, like then it's like still this big, horrible, traumatic thing and I'm afraid of it, you know, like you have to figure out how how to give a meaning. And the same thing is when when somebody dies, it's the same kind of thing. You know, we're always looking for a way to try to understand what events happen. Why did someone die? 
you know, like what, what can we do to, to make that death or that life mean something other than just like it happened and it's over. And so I think the hard part with, with Jasper's nihilism in that note is that the part of me that really wants and kind of needs Jasper's death to mean something, to have some greater impact or greater something, to be something other than just he suffered and then he died, you know? That note, you know, like like Jasper saying, like when he, in that moment, he thought there is only suffering and death and I choose death. Like that nihilism really makes it like that. That's kind of a blow to the stomach. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. So it was hard. It was, I have to admit, it was really hard to hear because that was a dark, dark note. And that was Jasper in a dark, dark place. And, and like, and like, they did not pull any punches with that. You know, there was no levity. There was no sort of like final moment of like, but I hope you live a good life. It was just like, Monty, I know you're an optimist, but I think that you're wrong. You know, like that's all that there but was. But I think that you're wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and in that moment, Monty's reading it and thinking like, Jasper's right. You know, like Jasper is right. And I was wrong. Like I was the optimist and I was wrong. And Jasper's looking around and he sees the world more accurately than I do. And like, and that's really like, that's the danger of that, you know, like, because, because Jasper's not completely wrong, you know, like there is truth in what Jasper saw. Um, as Monty points out, you know, and so, and so that, that's the part that, you know, the part of me that sort of like, the part of me for which Jasper's suicide last season was traumatic, like that, that part of me was like, oh, oof, okay, that's rough. You know, like it was, yeah. it was tough. Um, and I think, I mean, I think this is where the, the difference is though. This is where, you know, like last season, I was so upset with it. Like that episode, I, I was just like, <laughs> I mean, I, I couldn't record the next week. I was just like, it hit me so hard. And I was so angry. And I think I was angry because it was, I was angry because it triggered all that pain and trauma, you know, like it hit me in that really deep place. And it was, and it scared me. Partly because Jasper in that moment was being contrasted with Raven and Harper who made different choices, you know, who came to that brink and then said, no, actually, I, I choose life. I think I'm, I'm going to choose to fight. And it was sort of framed in a way where it was like, it was framed in a way where it was like two people who chose to fight and one person who gave up, right? It was framed as giving up. Right, and, right. and, um, and between the giving up, um, which I think is a really, I think that's a really toxic way. It's a bad way to frame suicide. Um, I think it's the wrong way to frame suicide. That's like frustrating thing because like when you're in it, you know, like that, that sort of is, is cheapening how hard it is when you're there, you know, like some, it's not necessarily giving up. Sometimes you're just fucking tired, you know? Um, so between that and then the, and then like Monty having to watch it, I think like those are the two things and the framing of that that were, that I, that I struggled with so much. This one, I think, worked out differently. And I think it's because like, there's two things that even though that note and how dark it was really kind of like punched me in the chest, like two, a couple of reasons I think it didn't, didn't ping the trigger. It didn't ping the trauma in the same way. And one of them is that there is a lot of emotional truth, you know, in how dark a place Jasper was when he wrote that note and how, and, and the kind of like fear and trauma and, um, the way that it affects Monty, which is that like, 
first of all, you know, I think the difference is like, it is, it is a truth that Jasper was in that dark place. And I don't think that it's wrong to depict the fact that he was there. You know what I mean? Like, like Jasper was there and that's a real place that go, people go to, you know? And so, and the moment was framed as a being about getting to watch his best friend confront that and cope with it, you know? Like, so, so on the one hand, I'm really glad because it means like, there's a, there's a degree to which getting to see the fact that his words were read, that we got to hear them, that we got to see the people closest to him hear those words and sort of like think about him again and think about who he had been and think about his life and his death and watch, watch those things impact them and shape them and change their choices going forward. I think what it means is that it does give meaning to Jasper's life and death. He was in a dark place, but there's meaning to that darkness because that story isn't over. You know, because it keeps going, because Jasper keeps meaning things to people. And I think the other big thing, and this goes back to where we started with the, um, the cycle, the, the sort of breaking of cycles, um, insight. I think the thing that is sort of like redemptive, I think they did a very nice job of honoring the ways in which Jasper wasn't crazy. He was right. You know, like he just, he, he, he was looking at the world through a lens in which he couldn't see any of the positives. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he was right about the bad, or he was wrong about the bad things that he saw. But there's truth in what Jasper saw, you know? And I think like having Monty kind of like react that way and go to that dark place for a little bit too and kind of like confront that and say like, look, like look at us. Look what we're doing. Look at what, look how we're back down here and we're already doing the same things again. Already. We're ready to just like, annihilate each other people around us are doing horrific things because they feel like they have to because because they're locked in this thing we're like this person has this thing i want and i can't let them have it and i need it for my people and so i'm going to do this terrible thing because i have to because i have to get this thing there like monty is right about the cycle and jasper was right about the cycle and so i think you know there's something about like sort of honoring the way the way that jasper's that that dark perspective that he was trapped in as tragic as it was makes it possible for monty to kind of like articulate the fears and the misgivings that he has and to point out to everybody around him who kind of have blinkers on like even not just octavia but i think um bellamy and clark too through most of the episode are are sort of like bellamy and clark are really like locked back into all right what we have to do is save these specific people. And so in order to save these specific people, we're going to do these things. Whatever we got to do to save these specific people, we're going to do it. They're making all the same mistakes that they made before, you know, in a, in a different way on a smaller scale, right? Like they're no longer in a position where they're going to be able to kill 300 people. They're going to kill like four people, right? They're going to kill the sentries instead of killing an entire army. But it's still the same decisions again. And I think Monty makes it that note and Monty sort of responds to it and Monty sort of remembering his best friend and thinking about those words makes it possible to see that. And so Jasper's death is the thing that winds up making it possible for Monty to see and articulate and point out, here is the big cycle of war that we're reliving. This is the pattern that we're slipping right back into. And you guys can't even see it. You know, like Bellamy can't see it because he's so worried about getting back to Echo and Raven and making sure that they aren't killed by the worms, which is legit, obviously, totally legit. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. But he's not really, because he's so focused on that goal, he's willing to kind of like, 
there's all these acceptable losses that, you know, for, for Bellamy, the centuries are acceptable losses, you know, um, just kind of accepting like, whatever, our war is going to be fought. That's not my problem. My problem is getting my people out safe. Like all these things are acceptable losses. And Monty's looking around and going like, really? We're doing this again? We're really like sitting here and being like, I'm okay with these people, these, those are people over there dying and with letting this war go forward as long as these specific people are okay. And that is what makes it possible, I think, for Clark at the end. And obviously Clark, you know, for Clark, the push has to be, conditions have to change so that this is, so that like what's happening with Maddie changes, right? Like Clark's always going to be willing to sacrifice whatever for Maddie. So it has to get, Clark has to get put into a position where like getting Maddie out is no longer an option. But I think that's what makes it possible for Clark to kind of look around and go like, okay, if what looked before from the other perspective, what looked like inevitability, this war is going to happen. Octavia is going to do what Octavia is going to do is actually not an inevitability. We do have a choice here. We, we, we've been telling ourselves there's nothing we can do. We only have this choice. Our only choice is doing this. That's a lie that we're telling ourselves. And I'm going to stop telling myself this lie. This lie that the cycle tell that, you know, like if you believe in the cycle, you believe that you only have these choices. That's how she's able to get to the end and say to, you know, to Monty, like, I'm doing it. I'm breaking the cycle. You know, I'm changing the, I'm, I'm changing my mind about what's an acceptable loss and what's not. What's, what's inevitable and what's not. And, you know, I think the kind of like underlying DNA for all the like little, you know, circumstantial things that have to happen to push Clark to that point. Um, you know, I think you can trace it back to Jasper. And so yes. at the end of the day, it's possible that Jasper's death ultimately is the thing that means that they're breaking the cycle of war, which is like, okay, so there we go. We have meaning, you know, like. Yes, exactly. Yes. So so that I think as dark it is, as it is and as hard as it is, you know, for me, I'm sort of like, all right, you know, like it feels like it feels like honoring every part of Jasper, who he was and how he died. And and the sort of dark parts about it, but also the 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 fact that like however dark it is, however impossible it might seem to see the the other side of things, to see a way out of the darkness. Like don't you know, Jasper says like we keep looking for the light at the end of the tunnel, and it's only tunnels. Well, that part's not true, but it's true that the tunnel is really really long, and you're never going to find the light at the end of the tunnel if you're not willing to you know, take a turn or whatever. I don't know. I, that analogy failed me, but, uh, <laughs> um, but you know, but the, but, but that Jasper's sort of words and, and Jasper's influence on Monty is what made, made change possible. I think that's, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, all right. I feel like, I feel like Jasper is still like his spirit is still present there. And he sort of, he was able to change the, he's able to change the map in a way that um that feels like a kind of is honoring him and and didn't just let you know that let his death be the end of the story and you know other than a couple of like oh yeah we're all sad for jasper anyway move on you know like he has he's more consequential than that so so that that felt cathartic not necessarily good but cathartic yeah it was it was i i totally i totally agree with everything that you said i think it was you know it's very hard to watch. Um, yeah, yeah. And I and I think for me, one of the things that I appreciated about about it, even even as it was something that was just really 
really difficult because we were entering so vividly into his pain is that I think there were some really, and I, and I, we can circle back to this, I think in a, in some more literal ways when we, in the end, when we come back to Cabby, cause I had, I had lots of thoughts about Jasper Monty, Kane Abbey parallels, but I think in, in the scene, like in the Monty stuff, I think one thing I thought that I sort of was just thinking about a lot is like, you know, like from Monty, like he just, he, Monty did not know how to help Jasper. Like Monty did not, Monty did not understand if you haven't been there and he had not been there, like the workings of Jasper's mind and emotions just sort of inherently didn't make sense to them because like Monty also has suffered a lot. And, and I think that it was hard for him to kind of figure out why do these things land the way they land with Jasper in a way that's different from the way that they land with him. And I think one thing that I, um, that I thought was really sort of sad and beautiful in this episode was the way it kind of drew a line between like ways in which Jasper and Monty are actually very similar. Like, like Monty does not have suicidal ideation in the same way, but both of them felt like trapped in these sort of powerless cycles of inevitability. You know, like Monty, Monty didn't want to come back down to earth for this reason, because Monty felt like the cycle was stronger than he was, you know, like he, he in his own different, but kind of parallel way was like, I don't, I don't know how to break a cycle. So I have to opt out of it. You know, like I have to sort of recuse myself. And, and so on, on a certain level, I think Monty's desire to stay in space or to go back to space or to sort of escape and the choice that Jasper made kind of have some common DNA in terms of both of them being being people who struggled once they were in a dark place to see a way out of it. And I think that serves as a way to, you know, like when but like both Monty and Clark so far in this season have said some variant of maybe Jasper had the right idea and then kind of moved and then sort of pivoted away from it and like didn't didn't follow through on that thought. But I think the difference in those moments is really interesting because for Clark it's like, you know, she sort of exists in that moment for you know, while she's like, she's so isolated, you know, she's being sort of broken down step by step by step. She has nothing. Um, and the kind of culmination of that is like the moment where she's about to give up. And then she, you know, and she sees the bird and she like her sort of like one last kind of like desperate, like, all right, like, fuck you, the cycle. Like, I'm going to smash my way. Like, this is what Clark does, you know, and Monty and Jasper weren't wired like that. And, um, and so for Monty, I think what he needs to kind of pull him out of that, you know, his relationship with Bellamy is an anchor in this episode. His relationship with Harper is an anchor. I think the whole episode is full of like, there are characters who, when they're inside a cycle, struggle to see alternate ways to exist, struggle to see that a better way is possible. And, and I think that sort of setting up like, you know, Monty, Monty wants the world to be different. He wants the world to be better, but he doesn't think that there's any way for that to be possible because all he sees is everyone keeps, you know, making the same choices. Person A does X and then person B retaliates and does Y and then person A does Z and ad infinitum, which has some sort of interesting 
commentaries I don't quite know how to articulate about the show and this world on kind of like a meta level, you know, like it's, it's reflecting like it is this sort of pattern that they keep ending up in over and over and over and over and over again. Um, every time they sort of run up against a new antagonist, we sort of like, we draw lines, we, you know, we fight over resources or space or land or survival or whatever. But I think Clark, I think what Clark does that I, that I, that we had talked about a little bit in the last episode and Clark sort of finally like, I think shines a spotlight on it and sort of forces some of the other characters to begin facing it, you know, by, by her action at the end. And I think it's precipitated by the Jasper and Monty stuff is illuminating the fact that like this time it actually could be different. You know, like this time, this time the war is the war part is bullshit. Like this time the war, the war is not necessary for them to survive, for everyone to survive. You know, it is, it, it's qualitatively different in some really significant ways from all the times that they've been here before. So like what Monty sees is like, are you kidding? We're fighting again. We're going to war again. Like he's just, he's sort of, he's seeing the, the human responses to the situation as being identical to all the times that he's watched them have the same response before. And he's like, fuck, I can't believe we're here. And I think Clark is the first person who can kind of look at it and see a way, a way in which they don't have to sort of get to that point. Like everyone else is trying to figure out, you know, like, like she says, like how to win the war. Everyone's trying to sort of make that same set of calculations. And Clark can sort of rewind one step back from that and figure out, wait a minute, what if there's a way to prevent us from having to end up in that situation in the first place? Because Clark is a person who has a lens that allows her to not have to see being stuck in a cycle as a necessary limitation. And sometimes that gets her in trouble, her sort of like reckless belief in her own, like, I'm going to just fucking do it, you know? Yeah. It's interesting, though, you know, because... So, I mean, that ending scene was definitely, like, classic Griffin woman. Fuck your choices A and B. I'm going to do yeah. choice C, which you didn't even know existed because I'm just, like, creating it out of Because I made it up on the fly weird. just now. <laughs> because, like, I don't want to do A or B because both of them suck, so I'm going to do this other thing. But, like, the interesting thing is I think there's there's another wrinkle to that this season and this episode, uh, which is that, so first of all, in a lot of ways, Clark started this cycle of violence because she fired first at uh, Elegius. Yeah, that's true. So um, not that that uh, is what started the conflict between Octavia and Dioza. That was other people. But like, in a, in a you know, so so like Clark, Clark sort of created an antagonistic relationship between her and uh Elegius at the beginning that wasn't necessary because she was in that defensive you know like she's the one who's locked into that sort of like fear and assumption right. that there must be sort of antagonism and she's the one who fired first and then it kind of turned into a whole thing so in an interesting way like Clark is sort of like locked into the cycle too for most of this or you know for a lot of the season and this episode you know same kind of thing where she uh, you know, she's like, she's with Bellamy, where her priority is getting Maddie out, right? Like, and she's sort right. of, a, you know, she's a little bit like, well, whatever I got to sacrifice to get Maddie out and to get, you know, to, um, 
Shallow Valley and get my mom and Kane and everybody else out before the worms arrive, like, whatever, you know, like, sucks that they're going to do the worm thing. But, like, as long as our people are okay, we're just going to, like, worry about that. Like, so at the end, she flips it around, you know, she she finally is like, all right, we're going to do this, you know, I'm going to, like, flip the script. I'm going to break the cycle. I'm going to, I'm going to, like, pull the, I'm going to do the thing that none of us have been willing to do, which is articulate the source of the problem. And the source of the problem is Octavia. But the reason that she does that is because of Maddie. Because Maddie makes a choice of her own. It's like everyone around, you know, Clark is telling her, don't let anybody know, you know, like pretend to suck so that nobody knows you're special so that they don't want you to be commander. And Gaia says, you know, pretend you suck because if anybody knows, you know, that you're special, then then you're going to be in danger. And I want to protect you because I is because when Blood Rain is gone, I want you to carry on the legacy of the commanders. And so it's like Maddie has these people around her are basically like, don't rock the boat. Don't introduce change. Keep your head down. Don't let anybody notice you or think that you are anything that's going to change, you know, the lay of the land. And it's Maddie's decision not to do that. It was Maddie's decision to fight back because she can. And then also, you know, to like break the cycle of bullying and like hold out her hand to the kid who mm-hmm. is a jerk to her and help him up. Maddie is the one that pushes Clark to the point where she's able to walk into that room and say, we're breaking the cycle. And I think that's really important that the source ultimately it's not, it's not Clark just being like, you know what? Never mind. I don't want to do this. Let's do something else. It's Maddie, Maddie making a choice that pushes Clark to that point. And that feels important to me because I think because, it, because of all the other cycles that Maddie is loop is, is a part of or is sort of like hooked into in this episode. So like, if we're thinking about breaking cycles, you know, it's like one of the cycles, obviously, is the cycle of war, you know, that that, Mon- that Monty's right. pointing out, the cycle of violence. But there's a bunch. So like, as soon as we started thinking about cycles, I was like, all right, what other cycles are happening? Like, what other cycles do we see in this episode that are being disrupted or could be disrupted or whatever? Like, just basically like looking for cycles. So one of the cycles that, that Maddie is looped into is power succession as a cycle. So she is yes. through Gaia. The cycle of the commanders, you know, the, the flame, that is a kind of cycle. Um, and that in itself is also a, its own cycle of violence because we see Gaia's perpetuating a cycle in like having a bunch of child warriors that she's training to fight and who will fight yeah. each other eventually for power and supremacy. So like Gaia is perpetuating that cycle. And in a way where it's sort of like fundamentally because she's honoring that cycle, because she believes in that cycle. And also a little bit, I think, because she doesn't know any other way to be, you know, like as far as Gaia knows, like the way that you, you know, ensure a peaceful transfer of power is you have a bunch of children that you teach to fight and then they all kill each other, right? Like this is how, right. this is how, this is how things work. This is how things work when you're a flamekeeper. So, so I think have, showing that room full of children learning to be warriors. And having Maddie be kind of like, Maddie is the symbol for Gaia of being able to reclaim or perpetuate a cycle that she thought she was going to have to let go of. So there's that cycle, you know, like, so Maddie is a part of it. She's sort of like other people see her as a, as a sort of symbol of it. And all these people around her, like Clark is worried about that because she doesn't want her to become commander. 
Gaia is worried about protecting Maddie because she does want her to become a commander. They're all saying, like, don't show off. Don't let anybody see that you're a threat because we have to keep you safe so this other thing can happen later. And Maddie decides, you know, she does the opposite of what they want her to do. So she's kind of breaking a cycle. So I'm sort of like, I'm thinking about, like, she's looped into that cycle, you know, so it feels to me like bringing back the flame, bringing back that stuff, it... I'm sort of, I suspect that Maddie will eventually be the one to break that cycle for good, whether she's yes. offered the flame and she refuses it or whatever. Like she's going to be the one to kind of be able, because she's really coming in from the outside and always has been since we know that from her backstory that her parents hit her, you know, they did not want her to be a part of that cycle. Well, and you see her re- recoil when Gaia brings the flame out where it's like, she knows what this means. Like this is yes. the thing she's been hiding from her entire life. Exactly. And she's also the one you know, we saw her her reactions to Clark in the early episodes when Clark is sort of locked into the cycle of assuming new people equal threat, where Maddie's mm-hmm. kind of going like, okay, but we don't know that. What if they're good guys? We don't know what that, if, yeah. You know, like, like Clark is locked into the, the cycle that Clark was locked into was there are no good guys, right? Like, this is the cycle that she's perpetuating. Maddie's the one who's able to look at Clark and say, I'm not sure that that's right. You know, like, I'm not sure that, the, that what you're seeing, that you're seeing things accurately. Um, so I think... We're sort of like set up Maddie as a character as the one who's like just enough outside of all of these cycles that she's able to look at them and say, and, and basically say like, okay, but what if this is different? What if this was a, a different, what if there's a different way? So I think her being looped into the, you know, to the sort of commander cycle, I think is, is an indication. I suspect that she's going to be the one to disrupt that. Then also her becoming Octavia's second. That's a perpetuation yeah. of another grounder cycle. You know, like that was mm-hmm. a cycle of, again, like this is how, this is how grounder culture worked, right? Like you had, you had children, you taught them to be warriors. They became the seconds of adult, you know, of like leaders, like Lexo was Indra's second. <clears throat> Octavia was Indra's second. You know, the way that this works is that you identify, you know, the particularly talented children. And then you take them under your wing and you teach them to be warriors and you teach them all you, those values. And then they keep perpetuating that blood must have blood cycle, you know, the like, whatever the, the blood rain, one of us for all of us cycle, the, there, you know, be the last, whatever. So like, Indra, you know, Octavia is looking at Maddie and being like, I need a second. I'm going to teach you to be me. You are going to pick up the cycle, this, this tradition and carry it on. Um, so I think, you know, sort of showing Octavia, asking her to be her second and doing that handshake. Again, Maddie is sort of being looped into the perpetuation of a cycle. That we've already seen in a bunch of ways is like basically moribund. You know, it's like a zombie yeah. cycle. Like it's just shambling on because no one has any idea what else to do because, you know, whatever, like because there was a time in the bunker when this things needed to be like this in order to survive and and Octavia can't see any different. Like Octavia can't see past Blood Reina. Um, and again, I, I, I suspect, I, you know, with all the sort of talking, talk of breaking of cycles, like obviously Clark... Clark's decision in this will be a big factor in breaking that cycle. I think Dioza will be a factor in breaking that cycle. But I think Maddie is the other big piece. Like, Maddie, I think, is the other character who I think we're sort of getting a lot of signals that she is going to be, like, she's a cycle breaker. Like, she's the yes. she's the kind of, like, rogue element that no one can yeah. predict. Like, Clark can't even predict. Nobody can control her. Maddie's going to do what she's going to do, which is, like, awesome and, like, really exciting. <laughs> well, and I... I think I like, I mean, I just, God, I love Maddie so much. She's <laughs> such a great character. But the thing that I really like about how they're sort of using her in the narrative, like you said, to kind of illuminate 
those cycles that she's kind of breaking her way out of is, you know, I think it's, I think it's really important the fact that she's a child. Like, I think it is, Mm -hmm. I think there are things that are only possible, like disruptions in the system that are only possible because Maddie, Maddie is a kid who doesn't have the same years of history of sort of believing in these kind of artificial lines of demarcation between like my people, your people, our people, you know, good, bad, that shape the way everybody else behaves, you know, and she's not, and she's not hiding from or, or trying to atone for sort of ghosts in her own past, which is a factor that drives a lot of the, you know, the older characters. Like there's all of these sort of patterns that, that we all, that we all kind of have in our lives that we don't even necessarily see as patterns that just sort of keep us making the same sets of choices over and over and over again. And when you're 12, you don't have that. You haven't developed those in the same way as, you know, when you're 50. So I think the thing that's really special about Maddie, that in some ways she's the only character with the capacity to do this is that she's like looking at every situation and she's both sort of seeing it on its own merits, kind of unconnected to how other people are telling her to feel about it. And she still has the same kind of child, not childlike because that's insulting, but like the sort of, a, a child's sort of fundamental belief in hope and the possibility of goodness and that the people that she likes will be worthy of that and that things will be okay. And like, there's a degree of like positivity, but not in like a naive way. But I, I think, I think what's interesting is I, is I wonder if there's a possibility that that hopefulness will be sort of like a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, like right now, as it stands, it feels like Maddie's faith in Octavia is, is insane is is blind and like you can see how clark is looking at it like you're a kid you don't know like you have no idea you don't know who she really is you haven't seen the things that i've seen the fucking worms that she's like growing in people yeah exactly (laughs) yeah like like there's things that maddie doesn't know that clark knows but she's like clark has very good reasons for the way that she feels about octavia that are that are rooted in an understanding of the depths of both the transformation in her and how hard if not impossible it's going to ever be to like disentangle her from that and maddie has this sort of deep faith in in sky ripa and like the hero version of octavia which could which which and there's sort of two ways that could go it could end up that the trajectory of that story is about maddie realizing that people are not the myths of themselves that she sort of created them to be. And it's a little bit kind of like Maddie grows up, but the flip side of that, and these also could sort of coexist simultaneously is what is the impact on Octavia of Maddie's faith in Octavia's better angels? You know, like, is there room somehow as Octavia gets darker and darker and crazier and crazier and pushes everybody else away that on some level, if Octavia's arc is sort of leading her towards the place of, of redemption, realization of kind of these walls crashing down that potentially Maddie's belief in the person that she used to be before she became Blood Reina and that kind of hopefulness that isn't poisoned by 
any kind of cynicism, like maybe could be a factor in Mm -hmm. that. That's a really good point. Like, especially if you think about like, you know, in the confrontation between uh, Octavia and Bellamy and Clark over the, the worm experiment, like Octavia's response to them, to, to Bellamy saying, you know, you can't do, how could you do this Octavia? Like you, you cannot do this. This is crossing a line is to say to them, you're hypocrites to say that to me because you've done the same things, you know, because, you know, throwing their past mistakes back in their face, like Bellamy. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, the massacre is brought up a couple of times. And then Clark, she, she mentions, you know, Clark's willingness in season four to test the nightblood solution on a grounder person. You know, so, so what Octavia is doing, like, and that's another cycle, right? That Octavia is sort of like looking exactly, to the yeah. past at other people's bad deeds and basically saying like, well, you did it. So. Right, exactly. Yeah. Like you did it and you had your reasons and now I have my reasons and I'm doing it. So like, you don't get to tell me that this is wrong because like you've done the same thing, you know? And so like, she's kind of like using the fact that they had made the same mistakes to, to kind of perpetuate that cycle. But like, like you're saying, like, if Maddie says that to her, she can't say Maddie, you know, like she can't look at a 12 year old and be like, yeah, well, you shot a guy who was trying to kill you. So, right. you know, like <laughs> Maddie's about as innocent as you can get on this show. <laughs> mm-hmm. So like, what do you do when you have a child, you know, who's like hero worship to you, who, who doesn't, you know, have like a, a lifetime of, of like, horrible choices and and war crimes <laughs> um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to to like take refuge in when she looks at you and says i thought you were a hero but you're a monster you know and you don't have to do the things that you think you have to do you could do like you have a choice you actually do have a choice not to do these things and you're the fact that you're doing them means that you are choosing to do them you know and like and yeah so, um, and that, and that means something for, for who you are, that you persist in making those choices, you know? And so, so yeah, so I think, you know, Maddie could be, Maddie could be the sort of, like you said, like the disruptive, the, the sort of disruptor of the blood Reina cycle of, you know, of like Octavia's total belief in her own, I don't even know what to call it, infallibility and not even that, just like. That that her choices are completely justifiable, you know? Right. Um, no matter what anybody else does or what else happens. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and, that, well, it, and that what she's doing is, you know, the best for her people or what she has to do for her people, which is obviously one of those things. I think the interesting thing about Blood Raina, I think, as a character is that, especially in this episode where we finally get, we're like, we're bringing up the past. So we're sort of like holding up the choices that Clark and Bellamy made for, quote unquote, their people in the past. You know, where they, they did terrible things, but the excuse was, I'm doing it for my people or I'm doing it for humanity. There's like huge abstractions, right? And we talked about that, you know, in the previous seasons about like the problem of abstractions when you're doing things for an abstraction rather than particular groups. And like, that's a difficult thing. I think what's, what's really one thing that's really, really interesting about Bloodraina, you know, Octavia as Bloodraina is that I think in a lot of ways, Bloodraina is kind of like, is a permutation of Octavia who is really in a lot of ways, working through that exact problem. What happens when you have a character who who is doing things for the abstraction of my people, but pushed to that extreme? You know, like really kind of working through very directly the dark side. And like, and Octavia, obviously, like, you know, 
as is the the case in this show when it's really firing on all cylinders, which I think it is, you know, definitely is the season, like, nobody is completely right and nobody is completely wrong. And Octavia has a point, you know what I mean? Like, we saw their hydro farm, they it is dying, they will starve to death, they literally don't have a choice. Except to get to the, you know, to be able, like, the green places where they, they're gonna, they have to go if they want to live. There is no other way to live. Uh, at least as Octavia goes, she doesn't know about Monty's algae, obviously. So, you know, like, she doesn't know that there's another solution, and that is eating algae for the rest of her lives. So as far as she's concerned, and then she tries to explain it to Bellamy at the beginning, you know, like, more gently than we've ever seen, like, it's this or starvation. So from that perspective... She is thinking, like, I have to do these terrible things in order to save us all from just, like, starving to death in this desert. On the other hand, does she have to use biological warfare? No. It might be the most efficient, but she doesn't have to. Does she have to sanction testing on living people? No. Does she? Did she have to make this a war in the first place? No. She could give in. She could agree to Dio's terms, but she won't. You know, so there's a kind of, like... She has a point, but there's, she's also sort of like locked into a set of false choices and has sort of convinced herself that she's doing things for this abstraction, her people, when she's kind of not, you know? So I think it's kind of like problematizing, sort of laying bare. I think this episode does like really lays bare a lot of these sort of like black and white things that people have convinced themselves are black and white when they actually aren't. Where like you said, you know, when you're, when you're outside of the system just a little bit or when you're a 12 year old, you know, looking in, you can see like, here are all the points where you have more flexibility. There's more possibilities than you see, but when you're in it, you can't. And I think the other like really, really cool thing about the Polis storyline on the, on this subject. So like, you know, Blood Rain is locked into that. And this is fairly new for Octavia because she's usually been like, not quite one of the leaders. Like she's usually the one standing outside being like, why did you do that stupid thing? You know, it was interesting to me, I think watching Bellamy and Clark sort of, uh, regress a little bit into those former, like Clark, I think is a little bit, a little bit less so. I think Clark is, is because for a lot of this, this, um, episode until the very end, she's a lot more passive. You know, she's sort of like, I just want to get Maddie out, you know, and she's, she's kind of just going along. Like when Bellamy, uh, when they're sort of talking about getting the eye in the sky up and what are we going to do to like get out and warn, you know, get our people out of there before the worm thing happens. Yeah, she's not super happy about the plan. Like, she sees that it's not, like, a great plan, but she's like, okay, well, this is, I don't know, I don't have another plan, so, like, whatever. But Bellamy, I think, in particular, like, it was really interesting in this episode, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, Bellamy in this episode was a lot closer to old school heart overhead Bellamy than he has been all season. You know, like, his plan, like, okay, we get in the rover and drive away and then get our people and then run. It's like, that is, that is like a classic old school Bellamy plan, which is basically like, um, I don't know. We run and we fight and then eventually it'll be fine. And when Clark is like, they'll, they'll send sentries. He's like, well, whatever. We'll just kill him. It's fine. It's fine. We'll just, you know, I don't care. Just, we're going to do this thing. Like the big, the big difference is that Octavia is the person that they're running from instead of the person that he wants to throw in the rover and exactly. get out. But, exactly. like, structurally, this is a very season one Bellamy conversation. Yeah, season one, like, I mean, basically, Bellamy plan up until, for the most part, up until, you know, like, this season where he's sort of, like, he has approximately one third of a plan. And then it's just like, and then, I don't know, I'll just shoot some things and then it'll be fine. <laughs> um, you know, it's a terrible plan. But, like, 
the thing is, like, I think, you know, Bellamy in this episode, he's just all he can think about, all he can worry about, you know, all, all that he's thinking about is the people that he loves and trying to make them safe, which is like that, like, that's the heart of Bellamy, you know, like Bellamy as a character right. is always like, he will do anything to protect the people that he loves. And if he's, if he's worried about them, he's like in a panic and he will, he'll make dumbass choices, <laughs> you know, in an effort to save them. And so it was really interesting to kind of like watch Bellamy in that mode again, where everybody around him, you know, like Clark's like, sounds like a really dumb plan, but okay. You know, and, and Monty's <laughs> like, this is stupid. This is like, this is what are we doing? You want me to just like, you want to just like let this war happen? Just like let it happen again? Because we have to get our friends and Bellamy is like, yes, because our friends are the most important. So again, here, the, Bellamy is falling into that cycle again, where he's saying, there's this huge problem, the cycle of violence. And Monty's saying, like, why does it have to be a, a cycle? And Bellamy's basically saying, like, because I'm all I can think about, all I'm worrying about are these people, these particular people, everything else can go fuck itself. You know, I'm worried about these people. And that's a part of the, that's a part of the cycle, too. You know, that's the way in which I think Bellamy, although his, you know, Bellamy and Clark in this episode, although their intentions are pure, you know, they're coming from a place of love and, and concern for the people that they love and trying to just like, do the best they can to sort of protect their most important people from her varyingly horrific fates. That in and of itself, that is a part of what makes that cycle possible. Because people who have the pot who have the power on some level to make a different choice, which Monty points out, you know, and then and Clark eventually like lays bare by making a different choice. Just don't do it because they're like, I can't, I can't give a shit about the fact that this is in aggregate a horrible thing because I have to make sure that it's slightly less horrible for the people that I'm most concerned with. You know, so it was really interesting to kind of watch like you thrust these characters back into this situation and you know, they're all making sort of variations on the same choice. Um, yeah. And again, not exactly the same. And, and Bellamy isn't, it's not like he's totally reverted back to the same Bellamy. Like this is still, you know, right, right, right. Yeah. this is still soft space dad Bellamy, you know, like goes and finds Monty <laughs> and he's like, yep, this sure does suck. And like, I miss Jasper mm -hmm. too. And you're totally right. Like if we could convince everybody to just live on algae, it sure would be great, but we can't. So... Oh, well, you know, so here we are. Um, yeah, yeah. Because, so, because for Bellamy, because, you know, I think this is one of those ways where the title acceptable losses is really important. Because like, everybody has acceptable losses, you know, and for Bellamy, right, acceptable losses is everyone except space crew and Maddie and Clark, you know, and same thing for for Clark and Monty's in it like the, the conflict is that for Monty. For Monty, those aren't acceptable losses anymore. Or at least he's, he's questioning it. He's saying, is it really an acceptable loss to let, you know, the majority of the human race destroy each other? To let Octavia potentially make the only habitable land on Earth uninhabitable? Right. Um, just because we got to get there and get out, get our people out and make sure that they don't get eaten by the worms first, even though there's a chance that they, that, that might doom us all, you know? Right. That's not an acceptable loss for Monty, but it is an acceptable loss for Bellamy. You know, so, so yeah, so it's just kind of like, it was just sort of fascinating, you know, to kind of like watch, watch these cycles play out in the, and sort of varying degrees to which each character was conscious of the ways that they were falling into those cycles. You know, especially as Bellamy's sort of like, 
this is not to say that Bellamy and Clark weren't in some ways, like they were trying to like, you know, they, they tried to inter- to intervene with Octavia. Like they did try to sort of like mm-hmm. say, Hey, can you not do this? But yeah, they just like, they were not, it's interesting that they, the, these, the, the sort of characters who in previous seasons had been the big movers and shakers in terms of these things are no longer, you know, it's like no longer necessarily Bellamy and Clark who can like really shift the needle. It's like Maddie who's shifting mm-hmm. the needle. And that was something that I thought was really interesting too, just in terms of like of cycles being broken, not necessarily by a person's agency, but kind of like almost revealing their lack of agency. Like yeah. that it's not in some ways, I think I think the reason that I found myself very not not on board with it, but very empathetic to, you know, Bellamy's solution is like Bellamy feels like this is the only thing you can do. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He's powerless. Bellamy feels like he has no power to stop the war. All he right. can do is like, I can save enough people to fit into my rover and drive away and buy us some time and think of a plan B. And that's all I've got right now. Exactly. You know? <laughs> no, I mean, like, totally. Absolutely. Because because yeah. their power is so circumscribed. The only thing that the things that they have any control over are the rover and when Octavia finds out that they have control over the eye in the sky, that's the only, all yeah. the control is like a certain amount of information and like mm-hmm. where a certain amount of people go in the world. And Bellamy even, yeah. I mean, I think like, you know, so much of the kind of like passiveness of Bellamy and Clark in this episode are because they're so helpless. Like Bellamy says mm-hmm. when he's talking to Clark and Monty, when Monty and Clark are telling him about what they, about finding the worms, he's like, she won't listen to me. Mm-hmm. For the first time in this entire show, Bellamy Blake cannot motivational speech his way out of things. Mm-hmm. No speech that he makes is going to shift the needle because the majority of the people don't listen to him. They listen to Octavia mm-hmm. and Octavia doesn't listen to him, you know, and increasingly Octavia doesn't listen to anybody. Right. Indra also, I think in this episode, we see there's a shift, you know, where yeah. she had been a person of great influence to whom Octavia listened and Octavia mm-hmm. won't listen to her anymore either. So yeah, so like within, but again, this is another one of those things where it's like, because Bellamy and Clark for most of the episode accept the status quo as it's presented to them. They're like, mm-hmm. Octavia won't listen to us. Octavia has control over the people and the resources. Therefore, all we can do is try to circumvent her and get our people right. safe. That's true. As long as you buy the idea that Octavia has to have power and cannot be moved. Yes. And that's the thing that Clark at the end is like, wait a second. We can change everything if we take Octavia out of power. But that's the part that- Yes, we've all been granting this premise that is actually not a real premise. Exactly, exactly. So like, that's the final- And of course, like, you know, only Clark is able to make that leap, you know, because of Maddie's choice, because Octavia is a direct threat to Maddie. I think Clark would not necessarily have arrived at that point simply out of like, well, Octavia is like bad for these people. So whatever. She's like, well, Octa- Octavia has Maddie now. So she's got to go. Right, right, right. Yeah. But she's able to arrive there, I think, because emotionally she's atta- detached from Octavia enough. You can see, like, I did like that at the end, you know, Clark had that whole conversation with the Dioza looking straight at Bellamy. Like, she's 100% yep. aware, you know, of like, sort of like looking at him apologetically, like, I know. I know you're going to be mad. I know you're going to be <laughs> mad, but like... <laughs> This is the only thing you can do. Sorry. And then Bellamy turns around. And he's like, fuck. <laughs> um, yeah. And then we get to wait until next week to find out how it all plays out afterwards, which I'm very excited about. Yes. And, I, you know, we got like a couple little shots of somebody at chloroforming Octavia. I think, you know, obviously Bellamy is going to be like, 
okay, you're right, but we can't kill her. You know, we're just going to like yeah. tie her to a chair and whatever. I'm sure it's going to go swimmingly. No problems at all. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so it's like this interesting sort of like, it's a really cool pattern in this episode, you know, thematically of like being locked in cycles until the moment when you become able to see something you saw as an inevitability as a choice. Yes. And that's yes. the thing that kind of lifts you out of it and makes you able to say like, oh, I don't have to keep granting that premise or doing this thing. I can do this other thing. Oh, okay. That makes a huge mm-hmm. difference. The other cycle, I think, that kind of got flagged in there a little bit that I thought was interesting and, and worth like noting just because it feels like something that might come back at some point is um natural cycles. So the the sort of ecological cycle of the hydro farm mm-hmm. is another cycle that is being disrupted in a bad way, right? Like that's a cycle that is breaking down and yes. that is, and as a result, you know, people are suffering this there's a threat of uh loss of ecological stability of their food sources kind of like the driver of this conflict. And then there was also the kind of um the hint of that when Monty points out that releasing an invasive species into the only functioning e- ecologically functioning place on earth is a huge mm-hmm. problem because again, when you release a new species, a new living thing into a system, mm-hmm. an ecosystem is a cycle. When you introduce a new element, you change that system. So there's a kind of, there's a thread, a kind of running thread of in ecological systems, food systems being disrupted as well as other mm-hmm. systems being disrupted. And I think also very interestingly in the way that ecological systems and food systems are fundamentally inseparable from political systems. We sort of have this, fa- I think we, mm-hmm. we live in a fiction where we think of sort of like politics as a human thing that is separate from nature. Right. Which is totally false. I mean, there's a practically no land on earth that isn't managed, including places that are untouched and wild, quote unquote, we manage them. We like fence them off and say they're still wild, but they're still a part A, they're still a part of the global system. So they're still being changed things right. by things like climate change. And B, we're still managing them. We're managing them to stay the same, not to change, but we're still managing them. So like we are, we as a species are sort of inextricably intertwined in natural, in sort of ecosystems and natural systems. And because what we do is sort of informed by politics, you know, there's a way in which that nature is inseparable from politics. It's a part of all part of a giant system. So I guess I'm really interested in kind of seeing the way that that all works out, you know, the way that kind of like breakdown of political systems kind of maps onto or doesn't onto ecological systems and the way the two things are sort of affecting each other. But it did seem really, it did feel really significant that we got, a, like we had a bunch of scenes that were set in the hydro farm, you know, like that we saw yes. those systems failing. We saw those plants dying. You know, we had that moment where Monty was saying, the plants are fallow. You know, the, the crops are fallow. Mm-hmm. This is, the system is going to die, you know, in a few weeks. And then later on, we see him kind of hold up the algae and say like, I have another system. I have another thing, another way. Yeah. You know, like a new, a new way. That system is dead. And Octavia thinks that there's no other solution than but to put a land grab. But there's another right. thing. There's another factor in that theology. And I don't know, you know, it's, I, I'm not sure exactly where that's going yet, but it did seem like significant as a kind of like piece of these themes to kind of just flag and keep in our minds, I think, especially as we move into the end game of the season. Yeah, I was thinking about that too. Like, I mean, it, it felt to me in a <laughs> sort of Chekhov's algae kind of way. <laughs> um, you know, like I, um, part of me is just like, 
do I think this is true because I want it to be true because it was such an amazing kind of slow burn payoff. But like the whole make algae not war thing. It's like a cute, silly thing he wrote on his apron and writes on his bot. Like it's just like a Monty joke, you know, mm-hmm. but, but, Bellamy but it's actually, it. yeah, it's like, well, I think he says it because he's like reading it off of the jar, right? Or, or is like, or something like he's referencing yeah, yeah, it yeah. as like, this is your like thing you say. Yeah, yeah. But like, it has enormous merit as a concept. Like, it's literally, yes. it's a completely viable solution that was sort of touched on in a way where it felt like, are we pointing towards this sort of possibly being endgame? You know, like, the, I think the fact that, like, Monty brought some algae with him, you know, and, and seemed to feel like what's in the Hydro Farm now in terms of, like, equipment and technology is sufficient for him to get going what he needs to get going now that he knows how to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, so I really like the idea of however the end game shakes out in terms of what groups of people are where and what sort of habitations end up being survivable. And is it back to space or do people end up living in the bunker or, you know, or whatever the idea of make algae, not war actually being a thing that happens, you know, like that Monty yeah. figures out a solution to their food problem and averts, violence by being Monty like by through the set of skills that he has that nobody else has I think is really cool and I I think that certainly could set up for an arc that could pivot into giving him a lot more to do in season six if he ends up being sort of like the person who's the food provider I think that's not a coincidence that we got make algae not war and that he introduced and that he mentions it as like Mm -hmm. they don't need the land we have algae I also think it's not a coincidence because we have two other little small moments in this episode, um, either with Monty or mentioning him and doors that I think Mm. are really significant. And one of them is when he's with Clark and they see Cooper. It's like this little cute moment, you know, where like the door is Mm. locked and Clark's like, well, we can't get in. And Monty's like, you got to think outside the box, Clark. If you find a magnet... Stick it on the door that pulls back the pin. Like, Monty figures out a way. Mm-hmm. Because he's not thinking about the door in a lock. Because he's not thinking, I don't have the code, therefore I get, can't get in. He's thinking, what right. is the mechanism of the door? And how do I manipulate mm-hmm. it? Monty's able to mm-hmm. unlock a door that was locked. That seemed like it should be insurmountable. And then, when Raven and Echo are talking about the plan... And Raven, you know, basically says like, so this is basically like a keylogger that opens up a back door to the systems. You know, it's brilliant. So, so again, Monty figuring out a way, a workaround to something that seems impregnable, something that seems inevitable. Mm-hmm. We can't get into this thing. He's figured yeah. out a way to open a back door to make it to open up a possibility that seemed impossible, open up a door that seemed to be locked. It doesn't feel like a coincidence to me that. That we got these patterns of things associated with Monty in this episode. Mm -hmm. So, like, that all kind of feels to me like Monty being the the guy who who figures out how to do the impossible, you know, like, open up doors that shouldn't be openable in some way, metaphorical or literal, or both, having to do with algae, perhaps, (laughs) Like, that all seems like it definitely is going somewhere, you know? Like, there's enough yes. kind of, like, there's enough enough of a pattern there to me that it doesn't feel like an accidental pattern. Yes. And I like this much better as an arc for Monty than having his whole arc just be, like, I wish I was back in space. Which, for a long time, felt like 
is there going to be more to the story than that for him? You know, like that was sort of that was kind of the emotional thing that was introduced for him at the very beginning. And then he's both he and Harper have had sort of remarkably little to do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. in terms of like actually moving big chunks of plot forward. The only, I guess, new piece of information of any kind sort of before going into this episode that I felt like we had at all about where Monty's arc was going was that we've been emailing with Chris Larkin about getting him to come on the podcast. And he had mentioned like the later in this season we talk, the more we'll have to talk about. So it was kind of like, okay, so this is potentially an arc that will like take off more in the back half, you know, something Mm -hmm. that's been kind of like building and building and like, we'll suddenly, and I think, so I think we're there. Like, I think we're hitting that point. I think so. Um, I do think it is interesting that, for being the character who feels like is in, in many ways being set up to kind of be the one who's able to to see a new way forward, it, he is still a character who's very much the looking back the most in mm-hmm. in the most sort of conscious yes. way. Like he's the most nostalgic. He's the one who wants to go back to space. Mm-hmm. He wants to go back to that status quo. He's thinking back to Jasper. You know, so I, I feel like his arc will be. At some point, Monty will learn to look forward instead of looking back. Like something will happen. Uh-huh. That allows him to let go of that regret and mm-hmm. fear and able to sort of face the future instead of facing the past. Right now, he's sort of, he's doing the thing, I can't remember who said it, that history does, which is move, moving forward while looking back. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so if, it feels like his, his arc is going, at least like in terms of like emotionally, is going towards him figuring out how to resolve all of this trauma and grief that he's feeling that's kind of locking him into this backward looking desire to shut down and like you said just like the only way that he knows how to deal with the cycle is to just completely like unplug from it Mm -hmm. he doesn't have that choice so he has to figure out how to sort of like reintegrate himself which i'm looking forward to yeah i it's something that it's really nice to see him with some agency again yeah for sure i said uh it feels like something that chris larkin will knock out of the park but yeah no it is nice to see monty with some agency and also it's nice to see kind of get the reminder like Monty is also a genius. Everybody underestimates him more than Raven, but like, yes, he is also a crazy super genius. <laughs> I think in some ways, like I, you mentioned this, we talked about this like just a, a tiny bit a minute ago in terms of Clark and Bellamy, but like the season one parallels in this episode were very subtle, but they were there. And one of them was, I think, very much like bringing Jasper back in such a textual way and recentering Jasper and Monty's relationship, even in Jasper's absence, I think was part of it. But also in season one, like Raven and Monty, like they, they worked very much together, but mm-hmm. they also were both like equally, like Monty played a really significant role to like yes. the, the whole group. And I felt like there was a part of my heart during those little sort of like adventure squad reunion storyline, like the, like Clark and Bellamy and Monty and Harper all in a plot together, which hinged so much on Monty's science brain and and Ravens from afar, like sort of connecting it, you know, like across the distance, was so lovely and such a great kind of touch point into, you know, like the show really remembering its history, like the show really yeah. remembering like who Monty is, why he matters, why he's special. Well, and also that like Clark, at the beginning, like Monty was Clark's go-to problem solver whiz kit you know uh-huh. before before yeah. raven came down you know like when they were trying yeah. to figure out how to use the bracelets as transponders and and other kind of technical problems like like that was monty monty did all that stuff for her so like kind of having that little that little sort of like mini side mm-hmm. adventure with clark and monty you know where like clark's like yeah. gotta go find out this thing and monty's like 
I can open this door. Like it was a nice little sort of, like mm-hmm. you said, like call back to back at the dropship, you know, like this. Yeah. Is yeah, exactly. A yeah. Role that he played. Yeah. Where you're like, I could see them like this. I could see this playing out this exact same way six years ago. Yeah. These two doing this exact same thing. You know, Clark's exactly. like, okay, I see a problem. And Monty's like, I will science our way out of it. And I was like, exactly. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So I think some like some of the cycles aren't bad. You know, some yeah. of the some of the patterns that they find themselves in that they're perpetuating are positive ones, are like they're finding their way their way back to old patterns and old ways that were better. Mm-hmm. You know, like the working together as a team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean finding their ways back into relationships. Yeah. You know, that once existed and sort of falling back into some of those patterns. And you're even just like mm-hmm. Monty and Clark and Bellamy sitting down together and trying to figure out how to solve a problem. Like that's, you know, again, very like season exactly. one. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so, so yeah. So like there is some reestablishing of old patterns and like you said, in a, in a more positive way, mm-hmm. as well as many more negative or ambivalent <laughs> ways. Yes. <laughs> Let's talk about worms. <laughs> worms. So first of oh all, God. I would like to congratulate you on having predicted this storyline a couple weeks ago. Thank you. I was <laughs> disgusted to be correct. <laughs> You're like, Ew, you know, yes. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh my God, congratulations to me on barfing. <laughs> So before we get into the plot of it, okay, so in terms of, like, the gross worm shit, part of me was watching feeling like, this almost makes me feel like cannibalism in the bunker is less likely only because, like, first of all, the worm thing in a live body appeared to be a bridge too far for Octavia for, like, a minute until Kara explained herself, Mm -hmm. but, like, gut instinct. Mm -hmm. Octavia was, like, not down with... The live human experimentation part of it. She was down with the like using of corpses. So I guess, well, so I don't know, maybe. But I think like that it was presented as like so gross and so shocking. Part of me was like, is cannibalism going to feel like a letdown after this? Like, did we all like, is this like, <laughs> is this the big grossness or I don't know? Or or is this a way of sort of foreshadowing that like Kara Cooper got really creative with what to do with a corpse? Yeah, I was going to say it was... It was- was Octavia sort of like casual, yeah, we put worms in corpses thing, like an indication of the fact that doing stuff with dead human bodies is like not a big deal to Bunker Cooper? Yeah, yeah, they've been <laughs> down this road before. All yeah. I'm going to say is everyone in the bunker wears a lot of leather and they don't have any cows. So that is a really good point. Oh my god. Oh my god. If if Abby's sexy corset is made out of human skin, <laughs> I will feel so ethically conflicted. <laughs> We're all gonna have to like do a lot of processing of our feelings if that turns out. I know, I know. It's like you all look so hot, but you're wearing like you're wearing red shirts, literally. <laughs> literally. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so the worms are just disgusting but also the idea of the the sort of the the two different threads of like what they're doing with the worms i mean it was so it was so gross but it was also fascinating to me in terms of the like how quickly either octavia or 
Cooper must have come up with this idea. Like the yeah. fact that they sort of moved this swiftly on like, all right, let's take this horrible thing that happened and try to find a way to like use it to our advantage. And that Cooper, you know, like she's a scientist, like she's mm-hmm. from Farm Station. She was like the farm manager. So we talked before about like the show seeming to set up, you know, however the kind of darkier stuff plays out that part of Cooper's role has been like managing, both managing the food supply and managing the politics of food, you know, mm-hmm. the sort of the riots and scarcity and, uh, you know, who gets what and how those decisions are made and things like that. All of this sort of social and cultural and political stuff wrapped around the concept of food and farming being things that potentially sort of fall into her purview. And we saw in this episode that that turns out to be exactly the case, mm-hmm. either that she is, you know, continuing to be the chief science officer of, you know, of Bloodraina. So I, so part of me is sort of like in a, in a science off between Kara Cooper and Monty, I definitely trust Monty's reservations about unleashing an invasive species over I trust Kara's whatever the hell limited technology she was left by Bill Cadigan testing. I don't think that we're being set up to think like, oh, Cooper was right. The worms just die off. It's fine. NBD. Yeah, I'm like, no, no, yeah, no, no, no. I yeah. feel like this is foreshadowing like, this is an eco-apocalypse and Monty warned us about it yeah. and Kara is going to look real fucking dumb when she kills the last habitable land on Earth and everyone has to go, I don't know, live on the Elysia ship or something. Yeah. Well, that was like very glib and she was like, I don't know, I ran some tests. It's like, what tests? Like, and, yeah. and how can you run like a test? Like, they can't live in a green place, a green space? Like, that doesn't even make any sense you know it's so like oh i don't know i i i stuck them in one of my dying plants and it and it died like therefore we're fine <laughs> right it's like well okay but if you like if that's one worm if you unleash a million of them yeah and then they're breeding yeah all it takes is like one or two of them who are resistant right. to whatever and then like they reproduce however they reproduce you know they produce offspring with that mutation and then suddenly you have a new mm-hmm. strain that can live right. in that place yeah like they're gonna evolve real fucking quick i mean it was a river like jason said on twitter like that the the sandworms are originally river monsters or whatever like the eels mm-hmm things so like they quickly mutated to live in the sand underground so right they can mutate again mm-hmm. so yeah that definitely felt like foreshadowing but like it's so you know it's really interesting that besides the sort of like <laughs> grossness and then also you know obviously like that's another another one of those cycle things that's perpetuating we talked about how octavia brought up like bellamy and clark sort of like past war crimes and then also you know the fact that clark and prime fire was willing to do human experiments when she felt like it was necessary mm-hmm. to save the human race. But it also kind of loops us back around to season one again, when the grounders used biological warfare against yes. the kids. Yes. Know, they sent in the typhoid Murphy mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yep. to sort of thin the herd of the kids so they could come in and remove them, you know. So so it's another cycle that Octavia is repeating, whether wittingly or not. It's like a kind of another mm. like thing that she's doing again. It's also like, it was really interesting the way that the light that that shined on on the power dynamics in the bunker Mm -hmm. and and also like in terms of like and how power sort of like ties into sort of ebbs and flows with the willingness of various people to push back on Blood Raina or not you know which has to Uh do with sort of moral flexibility basically you know and so it it was a revelation it was and it was kind of cool that we saw it through Indra's eyes you know that Indra discovers as we discover that Octavia Octavia knows that there are 
things that Indra won't approve of. You know, there are sort of like lines that she won't mm-hmm. cross. So Octavia hides those things from Indra. You know, and Indra, like yeah. obviously up until that point, didn't know. Like she she believed that Octavia still told her everything. You know, she did not know. Mm-hmm. She didn't realize that, you know, Octavia had sussed out that Indra was uncomfortable with sort of those things. And rather than sort of responding to that discomfort by thinking about it, you know, like either saying like, you're right, I won't, or like talking to her about it, she's just like, okay, well, I'll just do it and not tell you. Mm-hmm. So that was, I thought, really, really interesting, especially as the way that like, like, it was sort of framed in this episode as this is the moment that I think Indra realizes that Octavia, like, that Bloodraina isn't Octavia anymore and that mm-hmm. that she's, this is the moment when she crosses a line. Not even necessarily yep. because of this specific act, as heinous and horrifying as it is. I think, you know, it had more to do with the kind of, that confrontation between Indra and Octavia was so fascinating. You know, and seeing sort of, like, mm-hmm. screaming tantrum that Octavia has versus yeah. Indra's kind of, like, calmness you know it felt very much like it felt like a tantrum you know it felt like mm-hmm. like an imperious toddler you know with like yeah. <laughs> way too much power and i think that was on purpose you know it's sort of meant to show oh yeah like, octavia is out of control because she has sort of absolute power and she's only listening to the people who tell her what she wants to hear now mm-hmm. you know and anybody else who sort of pushes back and says to her what you're doing is wrong you know like she she literally she can't hear it anymore and it doesn't matter mm-hmm. who it is if it's Bellamy or Indra, like these people that she loves, she can't hear it. So yeah, that was like a scary but fascinating scene. It was so good. And it it, it was interesting. Like, it, I mean, she really like, she was like, she was a child tyrant. Like she went full yeah. Joffrey Baratheon on Indra. Like yeah, she, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she like Veruca Salt. Like she went like all the way, you know, like stomping her foot and throwing things. And I mm-hmm. think the sort of the juxtaposition of that scene of that sort of wild-eyed, hysterical, at-the-end-of-her-rope version of Octavia with what we can project might happen with one crew based on, like, the little bits that we know about the next kind of couple of upcoming episodes and and what we imagine Clark and Bellamy's plan might be. I am fascinated by the possibility of the succession plan stuff Mm -hmm, like that, mm -hmm. you know, that seems to potentially foreshadow Octavia could die, but that's very likely to be a misdirect Mm -hmm. because all this stuff with Maddie, Ethan, the flame, Gaia, everything plays just as effectively if she's merely sort of, she's just deposed Mm -hmm. and they replace her. So the idea, the, the visual of this Octavia, this like foaming at the mouth, like losing her shit, furious, pushing everyone away, Octavia, isolated, locked in a room on her own, having to face the fact that like nobody wants this war except her and like McCreary. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. like like everybody else, protagonists, antagonists, one crew, Elegius, everybody wants to live. Mm-hmm. And a version of one crew led by somebody who isn't Octavia, you know, whether it's Maddie, whether it's Gaia, whether it's Kane, whether it's that they all end up under Dioza or, or whatever, you know, like the two people who are willing to light things on fire just to watch them burn are McCreary and Octavia. Mm-hmm. You know, like they're, they're the two that will work counter to peace if it's being achieved in a way 
that doesn't give them the thing that they want. And so I just, so I feel like, I mean, I would be so psyched if we got the slow stripping away of all the Blood Reina armor, mm-hmm. I think is already on some level happening. Like, mm-hmm. I think the reason that she's so angry at Indra in that scene is not even just that Indra betrayed her, you know, or that Indra is judging her. I think a lot of it sort of circles back around to like Indra saying like, yes, I feel shitty about this thing that I did and I would do it again. Mm -hmm. Like I, nothing that you do or say now makes me feel like the choice that I made was wrong. Mm -hmm. You can't get me on board with this. Yeah. Like, and I know why I did what I did and And I stand by those reasons, whatever the outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, and I will never apologize for protecting you from yourself, which is a great line. Yes. And that very calm sort of, like, it, it reminded me almost a little bit of something that I was thinking about a lot with Dioza, who we'll talk about more when we get to Eden, because I just, God, I love her so much. (laughs) One of the things that I, that I love about Dioza in terms of her ability to kind of like instantly identify, how can I throw this person off balance immediately? Mm-hmm. What she susses out about Octavia within a split second of meeting her when she's like, love the war paint, by the way, um, <laughs> is that like the thing, which is such a great moment, um, is that what Octavia can't stand, like, like the thing that gets to her is being treated like a child, even when she's acting like a child. It's like pings all of those bratty adolescent, you know, who never got a chance to have a childhood and work that shit out of her system kind of stuff in her. And so being infantilized, being talked down to, that's her like primal, visceral rage trigger thing. And so Dioza, who might ordinarily, I think, have at least at least earned some measure of goodwill, like you're welcome for like letting you out of your cannibal murder box, you know. <laughs> I think in some way, because like Dioza gets off on the wrong foot with her immediately, because she's basically like, I see you. And you're a child, mm-hmm. you know, and you're a and child I think in a costume. Indra, I think that you're a child that, in a costume. Yeah, you're playing a role. Yeah, anyone who sort of like tries to get or does get underneath the costume, who sort of is like mm-hmm. speaks to Octavia as Octavia as a person rather than as Blood Reina. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, like you said, because I think like Dioza gets like kind of gets under her skin in a slightly different way from Indra because Indra is really talking to her like a person. She's not talking exactly, to Blood Reina. Yeah. She's talking to Octavia. You know, she's talking to her yeah. as an individual individual as someone you know she expects her to you know from the perspective of we have a relationship i know that you have emotions mm-hmm. i know that you have you know like reservations like the fact that she's yeah. questioning octavia is part of the, her rage but it's also because i think octavia like octavia can never look at indra and like actually when indra looks at octavia octavia knows that she doesn't just see blood Reina, and that makes her exactly vulnerable. yeah and so yeah. she, so she sort of has to react in a rage because, mm-hmm. again, because I think like Octavia, especially the more extreme she gets, the more she doubles down, I think the more painful mm-hmm. it is for her to face herself. You yeah. know, like Blood Reina is an armor that she wears that she can sort of hold up and she doesn't have to think about what it means about her as a person that she's doing mm-hmm. these things, that she's willing to do these things, you know? Yeah. And I think that it's the same thing that made Kane so dangerous and the same thing that is keeping her from being able to 
have any kind of connection with Bellamy is like she can't have anybody around her who like reminds her that she used to be a human being. Yeah, yeah, exactly. She can't have anybody around her who looks at her and doesn't see the myth. Mm-hmm. Which I think is like bringing us back to Maddie, I think that's really interesting because Maddie does look at her and sees a myth, but she sees a different myth. And so mm-hmm. it'll be interesting when, you know, to see if Octavia is sort of confronted with a different version of her of a mythologized self. You know, like Maddie doesn't know her, but she knows she Maddie knows all the stories that like one crew doesn't know and she doesn't mm-hmm. know the Blood Raina stories you know so like what happens yeah. when Maddie is like asking her to relive all these parts of her life that I think many you know many of which she's like kind of suppressed or sort of re sort of framed in her mind to mean something different than, than the version that Clark told her yeah because I mean I think the thing like the Sky Ripa myth that like and we talked about this before with myth Maddie too like the difference between the myth of Sky Ripa are like like those are Two very different versions of Octavia. And I feel like her Sky Ripper self, her like grounder warrior self, I think is so tied to her grief for Lincoln, her desire to belong. Like it's tied into so much of her sort of the vulnerability that came before that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so Sky Ripa was like strong and heroic in ways that you can understand would be totally compelling to a kid. But also, like, like had weaknesses and fought through them. Like, there's more humanity. That kind of character, like, that story of a girl who overcame the odds of being, like, the girl under the floor. Mm-hmm. And who was driven, really, by compassion, you know, who is the one who said mm-hmm. that, you know, like, because she wins, people from every clan get to live. She's not going to pick. Mm-hmm. one group yeah. of people she's you know she's gonna try to save some of everyone you know the kind of like universal embrace of Sky Ripa, mm-hmm. which kind of got like mutated and warped into one crew yes which is again a sort of like universalist but in a totalitarian way rather mm-hmm. than a pluralistic way you know we're like right. where you don't have clans anymore you don't get to have a clan because you're one crew instead of being like we are one crew but also you're you know you're Asgida, so like you have your own unique thing within the whole. There is only right. It's yeah. It's the difference between like community, like unity that comes from a sense of community versus like enforced Conformity. relinquishing of all individual identity. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's you know piece of where she seems to have gotten lost. So it'll be interesting to see mm-hmm. if that comes back. And that was like flagged a little bit, you know, and when Echo said my clan is gone, mm-hmm. and there's that tension when uh, you know some of the deserters, the ones. The, the, the ones who tragically the red shirts who uh talked to echo and by making right. themselves stand out of course died you know yep. they mentioned like this is our clan so there's a, there is a mm-hmm. kind of sense of like you know the the kind of one crew we are one crew and that's all we are is very much top down you know this is something that's right. sort of enforced by octavia that has that has made other things have to go underground that like some individuals mm-hmm. within this community have held on to their identities you know right. and the, like, the sort of plurality and their the individuality of their identities and they've had to sort of like suppress that because you know under octavia's rule but that given the opportunity, given the opening, they would want to reclaim that, you know? So so it'll be interesting to see if some of that, some more of that comes out, possibly through Maddie. Yeah. Since she has some memory of, you know, having a clan. Unlike, you know, Ethan, who's the other sort of kid that we know who was Sky Crew, but then was sort of taken on by the leadership, by Bloodraina and her sort of leadership. So it seems like he's like also just kind of bought in entirely. Well, and he says something really interesting. Like, he does not see Maddie as one crew, even though she was 
like personally initiated by Octavia. I mean, like yeah. he he's still like no, like he's very much of Octavia's of you know, and Octavia and Cooper in everyone's mind of like like what one crew means is like all of these people who like spent these six years trapped in this bunker and suffered together and have this sense of shared identity. That's what one crew is. And saying some words doesn't like you, like you are still not equal to me. Like I don't care what Octavia mm-hmm. says, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's a notion that I wonder if we'll get explored further. Cause it feels like it's sort of like lightly tapped at kind of a couple different places of like, like who's in charge of determining what your identity is. And when you say words to sort of rename, someone's identity you know that doesn't change their experiences you know like like what like what does it mean to be one crew is it just kind of whoever octavia likes is it based on this sort of commonality of shared experiences is maddie going to be asked to subsume the identity of like when they get to shallow valley like if this if it actually happens like if octavia releases the worms or whatever you know even if bellamy and clark can figure a way to stop it but like if she if her army marches on the valley and she wants maddie to be her second and Maddie is being asked for one crew, for her new clan, her new, you know, people to destroy the only home that she knew for the first 12 years of her life. Mm-hmm. What, like, what does that choice mean for Maddie? And does that mean, like, she's really not one crew, even though she took this blood oath with Octavia, because one crew is saying, help us destroy this place. And the part of her that is and will always be Shallow Valley is like, this place is my home and it should be all of our home, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. So I think, I think that that little Ethan moment sort of points at an interesting tension that I suspect will circle back around with Maddie about like, at what moments does she, like now it's like being one crew is cool. Like now you've been like initiated and she's Octavia's second and it feels super badass. And this is like the yeah. achievement of her child's dream. And she you gets know, to and be special, you know, she gets to kind of see Yes, exactly. Like and, yeah. hand selected by Blood Reina to be her second. Like this is mm-hmm. all she would have wanted, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what's the dark underbelly to becoming part of that yeah. Maddie is not going to think the worms are okay like Sky Ripper would never do that Sky Ripper fought with the sword with mm-hmm. honor mm-hmm. according to tradition mm-hmm. and this is like sneaky sabotage biological warfare bullshit that Maddie would find duplicitous and horrible you know, mm-hmm. even without, like, even if it didn't destroy her land, like, as a military tactic, she would be horrified, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So I just, so I think that, that like, who is and isn't one crew and who feels like one crew versus who sort of is being given that name and doesn't actually, you know, Maddie does not subscribe to this set of beliefs, she, you know, she wants the feeling of belonging, but she doesn't have the same set of shared experiences that led people to choose to follow Octavia's way voluntarily. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think it's possible, too, that it might, you know, it might see a moment where Octavia attempts to force Maddie to choose between her and Clark or, like, it comes mm-hmm, down to something mm-hmm, between mm-hmm. her and Clark. And I think there's no yeah. way that Maddie will choose. I definitely see that happening. Yeah, yeah for sure. So, shall we jet on over to uh, Shallow Valley? Yes, I think we shall. (laughs) So, where should we start over there? I feel like maybe let's start with the heist stuff and then we can end with Cabby. Okay, cool. It was so cute. Like, I have to say, just like Raven's like overjoyed little smile when she saw oh. her was adorable. Oh my God. <laughs> she just lit up. Like, I, I, and then of course, then it was immediately like, oh shit. Okay, yeah, I have to pretend like I'm not. Like, I want to fling my arms around you because I'm right. so happy to see a friend. But I can't like let them know that 
I care about you because that's, you know. Yeah, because then that puts us all in danger. Yeah. But yeah. oh, oh God, I know. <sighs> My poor baby. I know. That was actually like a really heart wrenching, like from beginning to end, from that like moment when Raven lit up and was so overjoyed to see Echo to the end when she was just so devastated. Oh my God. Couldn't even look at her. I was like, no. <laughs> and so painful for both of them too. I like know. Echo, Echo was so smart. You know, she did what Echo does. She figured out the only way. I mean, she was, this was such a fucking good Echo episode. Like I can't oh, even, yeah. like she did everything right. She did mm-hmm. every, like this was, she kept figuring out what's the best, most effective way to play this scene to get what we need to get done. So like she tells Dioza a story that's like 85% the truth, you know, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. she knows that Dioza is smart enough to check the checkable lies. Like she can't tell mm-hmm. her I'm not a spy. Yes. Like she can't come up with a reason why she's there that doesn't check out with the facts that she has to assume that Dioza already has about her. So she basically right. tells her all things that Kane can instantly verify, like the Kane knows are true. Mm-hmm. And that all the information that Dioza has on who these people are would be like, yeah, everyone knows Echo was a spy. Everybody knows that Octavia banished her. Kane saw it. They were all there. Mm-hmm. So this is all like verifiable, trust-earning information, which obscures the fact that, you know, and Dioza's on her a little bit like, I'm like, like, I'm not not keeping an eye on you, you know, but lets her stay. Like, it works enough to sort of get her in the door. But the next piece of it really requires, like, she has to make a really painful calculation between Raven's more hopeful plan that might take more time but builds them an alliance versus a kind of scorched earth, like, we got to just get this done. We are on the clock, you know. And Echo doesn't even know about the worms. She just knows that, like, Octavia's on her way and there's a time crunch that Raven needs to be aware of. So just the, I think the way that Echo is always seeing things like three steps ahead and moving the chess pieces around the chessboard, even though it feels like you completely understand why to Raven it feels unnecessarily ruthless, knowing what we know now about what Octavia is planning, it makes sense why Echo behaves the way she does. That was the most effective possible way to get Raven behind the console of the bridge as quickly as possible. You know, it just had horrible collateral consequences, but it also was the only way. I mean, like, Echo was really in an impossible situation because she has to assume that Kane told her everything that he knows about both her and Raven. And so Kane also knows that Raven and Echo know each other. Yes, exactly. And again, like, that she's a spy. And then Dioza, of course, knows that she's working in Angle. So I think Echo recognizes, I think it's probably not just a time factor with Shaw, you know, we're like, so the first attempt to just like ask him to do it didn't work. Right. And they don't have a lot of time to waste. But the other problem is that literally anything, any excuse that Shaw came up with to bring Echo and Raven onto the ship would be fishy. Yeah. Because of what Dioza already knows about Mm -hmm. Raven and Echo. Yeah. And so I think she also recognizes the only way to do this without giving ourselves away, like the only way to do this without the consequences for us being worse to actually succeed in doing it is basically like it has to be a double cross. Like, Mm -hmm. it has to be, she has to offer herself up to Dioza, essentially as a double agent. Like, give her something, some sort of information that's more valuable than running the risk of taking someone that she knows is working an angle onto the ship. And that is giving her information on someone who's already compromising her. And so I felt like so much for both of them, because like you said, for Echo, like that is, it's a genius plan Mm -hmm. to like have Raven distract Dioza by like scrolling through a bunch of computer code so she can just plug in that flash drive for long enough for it to upload. 
And, like, the other thing is Echo doesn't know Shaw, you know? Like, all she knows is that he helped Raven once and that he's refusing to help her now. And so as far as Echo's concerned, it's like, again, like that title, it's, that's an acceptable loss. You know, we sacrificed this right. guy. But, like, he's still working for the other side and he's not actually helping us anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. And, like, he may not. He might, but he might not. Right. So that's an acceptable loss. Whereas for Raven, she has this personal relationship with him. She has gratitude for him you know she like sort of feels connected to him and she like she sees something to to him and also she's not a spy she's not trained to make these kinds of calculations Mm -hmm. and then also I mean I think ultimately of course the betrayal is not really about Shaw it's that Echo betrayed Raven's trust Raven told her a bunch of things and said trust me wait for me and Echo took that information and did exactly what Raven asked her not to do and then forced and it shows a lack of faith in like the Raven, Raven was like, I have a plan. It's just moving slowly. And Echo was basically like, I don't have enough faith. You can deliver this plan. I'm not waiting around for it. And that hits Raven yeah. where she lives because Raven is the plan mm-hmm. maker. Like Raven is the person everyone comes to for plans. Exactly. So it's like, it's a huge personal betrayal. It's like a cataclysmic event in their relationship mm-hmm. because she betrayed confidence, because that had like these huge repercussions for Shaw. And then also because like you said, because Raven feels like she has implicit trust in Echo and everybody else and space crew she thought that she had echo's implicit trust and echo showed that she did and that also that echo was kind of like you know i think feels maybe to raven like echo is like they're not working as a team anymore like echo's kind yeah. of doing her own thing which i think echo yeah. sort of feels like from her perspective it's like i'm working for the big picture i'm doing the thing that i have to do and the thing that i have right. to sacrifice is personal relationships and mm-hmm. people's feelings you know like right. i have to do something shitty to my friend in order to do something right in the big picture. Mm-hmm. You know, and you can see how much it tears up Echo. Speaking of people returning to their old patterns, to old cycles, yeah. now that they're back on Earth, this is like a choice that Echo hasn't had to make in the six years that she was in space. It was mm-hmm. just like not, it's like something that she didn't have to be that person anymore. And now here she is thrust back into a world that consists of more than six other people into this difficult political war situation. And, you know, she's gone back to being Echo the Spy, being the person who is able to do these things. That's what makes her so valuable, of course. Mm -hmm. But it's also, you can see how it's devastating, I think, for Raven to realize, like, oh, this is a version, this is a part of you that I forgot was a part of you. Yeah. And for Echo to kind of also have to be like, this is a part of me that I didn't like necessarily and I didn't want to mm-hmm. go back to you and I was afraid of going back to you know and here and here she is and it's kind of really hurt for Echo too because we know from you know the first episode that little bit with Bellamy where he was like don't worry nothing's gonna change everything's gonna be fine on the ground and she's like you know she's so her fear was so palpable like she really understood like yeah I have a place with these people in this context in this mm-hmm. life on this space station but she didn't really have total faith that that had permanence when they were mm-hmm. put in a different context and a different when outside pressures came to bear and I think this is the first time where it's sort of like there goes one of her friends yeah where that connection is being cracked and maybe broken and yeah. it's just like and it's like, just so devastating to watch yeah because like that she wasn't wrong you know like mm-hmm. she was afraid that the end game of you know everybody returning to earth was going to be like things changing in a way that she couldn't control and Octavia reaffirming that she was cast out and like you know like it was like every single one of those things that she said to Bellamy was true and Bellamy wanted so badly to believe that they wouldn't be like Bellamy wanted mm-hmm. so badly to believe that this version of all of themselves where they were with the exception of Murphy but like everyone else where they were like happier more content they were really centered they were safe they had a community 
I think he wanted and needed so badly to believe that like all of that was permanent and transferable. Mm-hmm. And Echo knew, like she just knew, you know, and I and I think that's where and we talked about this a couple episodes ago, like the parallels between Monty and Echo are so interesting, like that sort of the gap between the person that you would like to be and the life you'd like to have and the knowledge that once you're in this particular set of situations, you kind of just go on autopilot. Like the only way to avoid becoming these people is to like physically remove ourselves from the environment in which we are mm-hmm. those people by like not going back down to earth. And like Inaka was like more resigned to it, whereas Monty is like, no, I really don't want to go. Mm-hmm. But then they, for both of them, it's shaped by like, if you put me back in this situation, here's what I'm going to do. Here's who I'm going to become. This is like, I understand that I'm existing in this kind of temporary reprieve, but I want to stay in that reprieve because I like that person. But I, I think the difference between them now is that for Monty, that sort of reversion to form, like we talked about the sort of pattern and cycle he finds himself in, brings him a lot of pain mm-hmm. because he feels powerless in it. Like the reversion to the mean that he's worried about is like being caught back up in this cycle that he can't control of violence upon violence upon violence. And the ground being a place where bad things happened. And so he doesn't want to go back there. And I think for Echo, her return to classic Echo brings her back to actually a lot of agency. Like it comes with a really high emotional cost and it's isolating. And it gives us a picture of how she became the person she was when we met her. The person who was sort of driven by loyalty to causes and institutions and didn't have any personal relationships. Mm -hmm. You know, like this is how you become that person this is how you become echo is that you're put in positions over and over again where for the big picture good you have to make choices that deeply wound the people that are closest to you and you can't let yourself have feelings about that like i i think it's really significant that the beginning of the scene between the two of them is full of so much emotion and so and like you know when she comes over and she's like hey spacewalker and i'm just like oh like this like i love the like the friendship like a sort of reminder that they've been six years becoming close friends you know yes. like we're reminded of how close she and raven are how real like each sort of prong of the space crew relationship, each of those friendships are super significant. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so we sort of get that like little peek back into the space crew girl squad just in time to sort of like smash it horribly. That being said, <laughs> I think one thing that I, that we definitely do see as sort of like a product of that, of that friendship is how even like as furious as Raven is with Echo, like watching her read every silent wordless spy signal in that little heist, like watching Raven clock immediately what is happening, why she's there, what Echo needs her to do, like every little, it was like masterful, you know, Mm -hmm. it was like another way besides the sort of the physical sparring that like Raven has learned from Echo and the time they've been together. Like they've all learned from each other. Echo knows things that she didn't know before about technology and Raven knows things about sword fighting and spycraft you know like they've all sort of they've all taken pieces of each other in a way that i think is really lovely even though now here it's used in this way that's really heartbreaking both for raven and for shaw but the relationship between the two of them being that close and being that intimate that they can say so much with just like like echo's face like barely changes and yet raven like receives all the information that she needs to receive to figure out exactly what she has
has to do and like execute it flawlessly. So it's a beautiful little mini heist scene with breathlessly high stakes. It's just like so tense. Like, oh my God, is Zioza going to figure it out? Oh my God, oh my God. But it comes at this emotional cost, you know, like mm-hmm. because one of the things that's happening in that scene is Echo is leveraging how well Raven knows her. Like, mm-hmm. like she's having to on some level not just use the friendship in the sort of overt way that she appears to be doing it to Dioza, but in a more subtle way of like taking advantage of the fact that Raven has lived in close quarters for her for six years long enough to know exactly how Echo's brain works and read her every micro expression, you know? So I think mm-hmm. it's just things like that. It's like a reminder that the version of Echo that we first met was like deeply emotionally isolated mm-hmm. and kind of existed only in relation to her loyalty to abstractions or to people who sort of represented abstractions. You know, like Naya as a human being only insofar as Naya represented all of Ice Nation and Roan kind of mm-hmm. the same way. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm interested in to watch going forward, I think with Echo, is how she how she comes to a place where she can be both of those people, you know, like where she can be the exceptional spy and strategic brain that she is in a way that doesn't force her to cut off the human relationships that have kept her centered and grounded and like made her a better and warmer and more open person. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'd like to believe that part of what they're setting up for her is a middle way where she can take on a role of real significance like she's doing now in a way that doesn't keep putting her in a position where like there's a cost to her to hurting Raven that there wouldn't have been when she was an Ice Nation spy and the people around her were all the same. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it matters to her that the plan that was the only thing that she felt like she could do in that moment to get what they all needed, which also helps to save Raven. Mm-hmm. Um, the only way to do it was to potentially, maybe permanently destroy a really important friendship, you know? And so seeing like, I think the fallout from this between the two of them, I think is going to be really, really interesting. And a lot of that has to do with what the fallout ends up being between Raven and Shaw. Yes, yes. And what happens now that he's in there with the prisoners, you know, like, Mm -hmm. with a lot of strategic knowledge and whether, (laughs) like, how angry he is and whether he can be sort of flipped that way, Mm -hmm. despite the several layers of betrayal that brought him to that place. Do you want to talk about Shaw for a little bit? Oh yeah, because we got the backstory. Yeah, we got we got all the Shadios a backstory. Yeah, yeah. I think I feel like we we learned a lot about pre-apocalypse Earth and his role on the ship. That I think is really interesting too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I thought it was really fascinating that he flipped to Dio's side. I think even earlier than we thought that he had, you know, like we sort of speculating a while back that maybe, you know, Order 11 was some sort of like kind of like amoral order that he had objected to. And that's why he wound up going with Dioza. But I think that that's what actually made him flip that like he helped Mm -hmm. Dioza execute the mutiny. Yeah. Was really fascinating. And of course, like the bit that that was totally new that he was familiar with her. Like he had- That he knew who she was before. Yeah. Yeah. And that part of his decision was based on what he knew of her from her time as Mm -hmm. what the government had labeled a a terrorist, what she would label like a freedom fighter, that Mm -hmm. that her her sort of like compassion and her orientation towards like saving people rather than like equipment, you know, was something that like stuck with him that when he looked at her, he sort of based on that, he's like, okay, I can trust her that her Mm -hmm. priorities are ultimately in the right place although you know her methods at times are not what he would like them to be yeah that was really really interesting yeah you know and the sort of the tantalizing little like the battle of San 
Francisco. I know, right? People being evacuated from San Francisco after a battle by aircraft carrier. So, so this is, so this is place where I had some questions. Like, so as far as I can remember, and I, and I haven't rewatched season three since it aired, since we recorded about it. I don't know if any of this is ever sort of like alluded to, but my recollection of what we learn like from and about Becca and Becca's sort of slice of the world, Cadigan slice of the world has to do with the notion that the bombs were unexpected, like that the bombs hit and only a handful of teeny tiny pockets of humanity, like the sort of elites that ended up in Matt Weather, were given enough notice to prepare and evacuate. And that's why everybody died. Mm -hmm. So the idea of a world that was already at war when that happened felt like a new wrinkle, not a like, where the fuck did that come from retcon, but just sort of like a, it's not necessarily, I, I don't think it's necessarily the case that the world was at war when that happened. It sounds like that would have been before because that was before Dioza was apprehended and tried and then sent into space, right? But like how many years before? I mean, I, I don't know, but it would have to be at least. Oh, well, he was a kid. Know. He said, "Yeah, he was a kid." So it would have it would have been at least oh, okay. like a decade before. And in fact, it's not even clear to me whether when he saw Dioza doing that, was she still a Navy SEAL? Was she like in the Battle of San Francisco? Was she fighting on the U.S. for the U.S. Navy, or was she was this before she sort of defected and became a terrorist slash freedom fighter? When she's talking to Kane about the like almost getting like it's her own Navy SEALs who like turn on her and turn like sh- her. Her criminal act, like the reason that she's being treated the way she's being treated, seems to be largely because she was like a freedom fight. Like she was doing this of like no, I don't think mil- so. I think no, I don't no? think so because oh, okay. like the 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 news stories that Raven pulled up, she was like a notorious terrorist. So she was oh, a Navy right. yeah, SEAL, yeah. then she turned, and then like the irony is that this the Navy SEAL team that they sent in after her. After oh, right, she had right. been yeah. a terrorist for some period of time, was her unit. You're right, you're right. But she yes, wasn't still right. one of them when they sent her in. So she was a Navy SEAL. She defected. She was a notorious mm-hmm. terrorist for some period of time. Then she was apprehended and she was sent to space. But the mm-hmm. Battle of San Francisco would have had, like he said, he was a kid. So it would have had to have yeah. been at least 10 or 15 years before Prime Fire. So mm-hmm. that could have been while she was still a Navy SEAL. I think she must have been. Yeah. Yeah. So before she turned, when she was still a soldier, Mm-hmm. And so that would have been well before. That's true. That's true. Okay, yeah. Easily the war could have been over by the time Allie was built and unleashed. Mm-hmm. And then the other possibility is that, like, you know, Allie, Becca told Allie to figure out how to make life better. And Allie said, figured out, like, the answer is wipe out as many people as possible, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, even if there was, even if a war was still ongoing, that would make Allie's answer totally logical, right? Like, your problem is mm-hmm. that you have a lot of people, you have too many people, and they're fighting yeah. wars over resources or whatever. They're fighting each other. So the way to make life better is to eliminate them. So it could go either way. But like the events, the the Battle of San Francisco, whatever war that is, that would have been well before. That's true. Yeah. You're right. You're right. You're correct. 
I was getting, I was getting like very excited about like, wait a minute, Dioza would have been like, I don't have a timeline, but like she would, like she's older, like Becca was younger than her. Like Becca was like a young woman when this all went down. Yes. And Dioza was already, like they were already, Legius was like, that ship was gone. Was in space. Long yeah, gone yeah, yeah. By the time that Allie came around. So. Yeah, that's true. So yeah, Becca might not even have been born yet. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so I just, so I found it really interesting, like just that snippet of was the Battle of San Francisco. I mean, if she's a Navy SEAL, like if she's like, if this was when she was in the military, then like that would imply like probably imply like a like a foreign war, you know, mm-hmm. so so is this potentially connected to the myth that spread later about like that the bombs were a first strike from China? Like it just sort of made mm. me wonder like how yeah. the fact that it was mentioned, like I, I think more than just as a way for us to know that Shaw sees something in Dioza that Raven can't see yet mm-hmm. and like I, I think like I think it's like it's very very clear why this moment why what we learn from from Shaw about why he chooses to follow Diosa despite the things that Diosa's done it's very clear why this matters on a character level like mm-hmm. both for mm-hmm. our for a picture of him for for our picture of, of Raven's sort of naivete a little bit you know mm-hmm. like she blew up government buildings because she didn't like their policies it's like well that's yes like Raven, everyone else in this storyline except for you is in that position constantly. <laughs> you know, like, like Raven, Raven is actually rarely in the position to have to make like political calculations. But like, the, I think there's a lot in past Dioza, in quote unquote terrorist Dioza, that I definitely think that we're meant to map very cleanly onto many other characters who mm-hmm. made similar choices for reasons that were about an ultimate longer term good, which was overthrowing a regime that she felt to be tyrannical mm-hmm. and that the people who were in the buildings that she blew up were acceptable losses, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. So I think there's an interesting angle at which it sort of it positions Raven once again as being a person who kind of exists in a sphere that is often separate from having to make those painful kind of human and political calculations in a way where that becomes a piece of Shaw that she kind of can't understand why he would yeah. find that acceptable like where she's still a little bit yeah. more like black well, she's looking around and trying to figure out who's a good guy and who's a bad guy and you know like he sort of has to be has to tell her yeah like, she still has that mindset a little bit i think you know slow down like no one is as bad as you think they are or as good as you think they are <laughs> yeah yeah and his and him saying that like that it was yeah. such a great line you know like i like she's not as bad as you thought and i'm not yeah. as good as you hoped i mean it, it was it's up there with there are no good guys in terms of like a thesis statement yeah. for this show Shaw's just like he's a great character on every level but i think introducing somebody who who instantly within just a few episodes sort of fits so seamlessly into the kind of moral and ethical fabric of the world of this show as though he's been here since the beginning I think is pretty masterful both in terms of the writing and in terms of Jordan mm-hmm. Bolger's performance and like he feels like he's and he's not even of this world he's not mm-hmm. even from their world and he just like sort of slots right into it and is kind of pointing out all of the same ethical conundrums that we've been existing yeah. in for five seasons I think there's also there is a kind of like similarity between him and Raven too in their in the way that they operate morally because I think they both 
tend to act from like sort of very much gut feelings about right and wrong Mm -hmm. because like raven is perfectly willing to raven can be ruthless you know like raven is like if you're like the solution is Mm -hmm. we have to blow this up she's like cool i can blow it up right so it feels like shaw is very he obviously has a very powerful conscience which dios is very aware of but also he's not necessarily strategic about it he doesn't think long range like she does he sort of has this gut feeling like firing a missile at these people feels wrong so i'm gonna not do it right There's a kind of like similarity between him and Raven in that way. They make those kinds of decisions from their gut and not from a kind of like systemic analysis, which I think is interesting in another way that those two characters kind of go together in really, in a kind of really fascinating way. Mm-hmm. And, and also, you know, interesting too, that then Shaw is the one who's trying to, who sort of like pushes back against Raven, trying to make things more schematic than they are. You know, she's trying mm-hmm. to make them like, you know, like, look, here are the lines. And he's like, there are no lines. There aren't lines. There are yeah. just actions. There are things that you do or don't do. Right. Because they're right or they're wrong. And that's it. There's no, like, she's good, she's bad. It's like, Legius was doing something bad and I didn't, mm-hmm. and I wasn't going to do it. So I didn't. And now I, here I am. You know, and it doesn't mean that he approves of everything mm-hmm. that Dioza does. But, you know, he just kind of goes, like, case by case, which is interesting. Yeah. One thing I think we could potentially, in the long sort of arc of this season, be headed towards that I think would be really, really nifty in terms of sort of the blurring of these lines is that we have... So these two characters, we have Octavia on one side and we have McCreary on the other, who are the only two people who who seem to want to extend the conflict. And McCreary has a crew within the crew that are loyal to him more than they are loyal to Dioza and who are not interested in peace and unity and harmony and compromise with the enemy or anything like that. So I feel like there's a real possibility that we could end up in a situation where at some point McCreary flips. There's a coup within Allegis and, you know, and Allegis now, now containing a number of, you know, of one crew prisoners or hostages who are, would suddenly then be in extraordinary danger and could put Dioza and Shaw in a position where like the deck gets reshuffled and now it's like them with our people against a sort of McCreary mm. faction, like a, a sort of definitive rearranging of the lines of who's mm-hmm. on whose side. And I think that switcheroo could be pretty straightforward for somebody mm-hmm. like Shaw. You know, like Shaw's loyalty is to Dioza, but it's also to the ultimate greater good of like human, like of as many people surviving as possible. And McCreary's is just to his desire to cause mayhem mm-hmm. and pain but i like the idea of you know particularly something like raven and even i think for maybe for echo how do these people adapt to that line evaporating between like between with dioza in particular but sort of like you know a, a kind of hodgepodge of like some allegiance and some one crew versus mccreary's faction and everyone having to sort of like a sort of mini one crew situation you have to sort of put aside your past perceptions of artificial lines of demarcation in order to come together to find fight a more urgent enemy and putting Dioza and Raven in a position where they might have to be allies temporarily could be a very interesting kind of exercise in that for Raven who is known to be a holder of grudges. Well, I think, I mean, a similar situation I think is, you know, building in the bunker where Gaia Yeah. yeah, I think Gaia is the kind of like on the fault line, you know, like Cooper is 100% mm-hmm. behind Octavia. Yeah. And, and you know, which reminds me, we haven't seen the the little bit from the trailer where between the 
scene between Gaia and Indra, which now I'm starting to think like, what if that is Indra pushing Gaia, you know, like basically like saying to Gaia, like Octavia's mm-hmm. lost it, you know? So right. yeah, so I think in both camps, there's like, there's fissures, you know, these outwardly sort of like yes. cohesive communities, there are sort of like cracks forming that could upend that and sort of and totally reshuffle decks in terms of who is loyal to whom, yeah. who's fighting whom, and yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. That when it feels like there's a big obvious exterior enemy, it's easier to kind of paper over where those cracks are. But I think that watching, you know, like what Jaha says to Octavia about like, you have to make mm-hmm. death your enemy. Like that's how we survived on the arc. You know, like she does that very effectively. And so one crew follows her because she's made death this enemy from which she's protecting them. Like, you know, a capital D death. Like people people die. Like a ton of people die. But like, you know, one crew's death. Like humanity's right. death. But if, like, Clark and Indra can convince Gaia and other people that Octavia is marching you towards death and that, like, the way to life is to make peace with Dioza... And in order to do that, you have to depose Blood Reina. Mm-hmm. I mean, they can flip her own sort of ideology against her. And all the things that were true, you know, with recruiting the defectors remain true. Like, they're hungry. Everyone knows the farm is failing. There's food in Shallow mm-hmm. Valley. There's doctors in Shallow Valley. There's, you know, there's shelter. There's only 300 of the miners. So there, there literally is no... I mean, we we keep seeing these sort of like gorgeous panning exterior landscape shots of like rivers and mountains and, you know, taking aside like, where's that water coming from? And how do we know that it's safe? But (laughs) science aside, you know, but like, there's more green land than just that one little village. Like there's no, like we talked about before, like this is this is not an actual war for resources. This is Octavia's refusal to yield even an inch of her power is the only thing mm-hmm. right now driving them to war. And I think that the handful of, of stragglers who are willing to risk being shot to defect, like that was a small group of people that were driven by pure mm-hmm. desperation. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of people were not willing to make that choice yet. But something that I think could be really interesting in terms of how they go about the process of where I think this bunker storyline might be headed, which is where the cracks to exploit, is I wonder how Miller slots into this. Like, I wonder if Miller is not maybe somebody in Octavia's upper echelons that they Mm. can flip. Like, I think, like, if Jackson knew about the worms and knew that Abby was in danger, like, Jackson would be all over it in a heartbeat. And Miller, I think, I mean, not just because he listens to Jackson, but also because, you know, he, like, he also, like, he saw that worm thing. He was there. He was freaked out, too. I think even though, like, whatever his feelings are towards Dio's or whatever his feelings are to, like, Kane for defecting, whatever, I don't think Miller's that guy. I don't think that he would feel like that's the way that he would want to win yeah. the war. So what I wonder is if maybe then we get we sort of circle back to season three Miller, like he was a pike, kind of like working from the inside, only with yeah. Bellamy this time, with yeah, Clark and Bellamy. Yeah. And sort of tapping at and exploiting quietly, you know, where are there rifts where people could be sort of pulled away from, like peeled back from their loyalty to Blood Reina until she sort of like wakes up one day and realizes that she's got like nobody left mm-hmm, but Cooper. Mm-hmm. You know, like that everyone else has kind of been like, you know, driven away. So I'm just... I'm wondering how, yeah, how those divisions within one crew, within Allegis, 
are going to end up being kind of tapped on once more and more people start to realize that like there actually isn't, you know, like if, if Dio's is like, cool, yeah, if you can hand out Davia over and surrender, we're good. We don't need to fight. I'm like all fine, you know, like I think McCreary is going to, especially coming back from presumably he's now being <laughs> tortured by Murphy and Maury. Like McCreary is not going to be down with like unilateral, like, no, we fixed yeah. it. It's good. We shook hands. We're fine. They're going to hand over Octavia. Yeah. War's He's going to be like, are you kidding me? You know, McCreary is going to be like, um, yeah, it is fucking not. I haven't <laughs> exactly. gotten to use my giant gun yet, you know? <laughs> so yeah. So that's, so I feel like we're, I feel like we're headed to what could be a really interesting look at like, who are the people who want war? Like who want war mm-hmm. in and of itself? Regardless of other circumstances. And who are the people who want something else and believe that war is the way to get that thing and could be persuaded that it Mm -hmm. isn't, you know? And I think that Dioza and a lot of people in Allegius, you know, Clark, we've seen already got there. Bellamy, I think will too. (laughs) But I think that like within Allegius and within one crew, who wants war because they like it? Because war itself gives them something. The thing that Indra says to Gaia in the trailer is, real warriors hate war Gaia which which is really what makes me wonder yes exactly yes yeah so Indra is also one of those people if that is Indra reminding sort of like telling Gaia like we can't follow Bloodraina anymore because you know she's becoming a person who is dishonorable you know like this is a bad war this is an immoral war this is like not the solution and you know Gaia has like she she even told Maddie you know like I want to preserve the commanders but until as long as Bloodraina reigns, I'm faithful to her. You know, I could see Gaia, I could see Indra, sorry, pushing back by saying, you know, if Gaia says, like, Bloodraina is a great warrior, she brought us here, you know, Indra saying, like, look, <laughs> you know, like, she has become something that she wasn't before. You know, like, she's a tyrant, she's a danger, mm-hmm. she's not a warrior. Real warriors hate war. Bloodraina right. r- loves war. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. Yes. So, so, yeah, so that kind of, right. that tracks with that, like, piece of dialogue that we know about already. Yeah. I think Indra and Gaia are going to be pieced out on that side, and then I and then I wonder if, if on the other side, if, you know, some combination of Kane Dioza, Shaw, maybe Abby, maybe Echo, maybe Raven, realizing like if war isn't necessary. Mm-hmm. That's good news, you know, versus the people who, you know, like McCreary, whenever McCreary comes back into the picture, like the people who follow him, who wanted the fight yeah, because exactly, they wanted the fight. Exactly. You know. <sighs> okay, now I'm emotionally prepared to talk about Cabby. <laughs> I mean, I'm not. I'm not and I never will be, but I also am. Are you though? The, as much as I'm gonna get. <laughs> So my thoughts on Cabby are are many, obviously. <laughs> there were a lot of very strong and conflicting opinions kind of within the Cabby fandom about the storyline as a whole, but in particular the final scene between the two of them. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of people coming at it from a bunch of different perspectives, of, of which some I think are really worth considering and some are more kind of like shaped by fandom wink that I don't care about so much. <laughs> But I think one of the things that they're doing really beautifully this season in Kane and Abby's storyline is the narrative is not passing judgment on either of them and it has enormous compassion for both of their perspectives. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so we'll we'll see something from Kane's perspective and then we'll sort of shift and see it from Abby's. Like the the story is not judging her for becoming an addict and the story is not judging Kane for the fact that he is struggling to handle that. Like I think mm-hmm. I think there's actually really a kind of astonishing amount of care being given to making sure that both 
sides of that coin, like how hard it is for him and how hard it is for her. Mm-hmm. And how hard it is to watch how hard it is for the other person. Mm-hmm. That all of that is being fleshed out and given a lot of space and a lot of room, I think is really important. I think, you know, there, I've talked to people in the fandom who, who personally, just from, from things in their own lives, really identified to a point of kind of triggering with the position that Abby is in and felt kind of wounded by hearing Kane say, like, choose the drugs or me. Mm-hmm. Because that is, it is not that simple. Addiction mm-hmm. is not that simple. Mm-hmm. Nothing in life is that simple. If she had, if she had just said like, okay, I chose you. I'm going to flush the pills down the toilet. Like that would be, that's a horrible message. Like that's a horrible right. and like, angle I to mean, take in this story. And I think the sort of signal to me that that is not supposed to be like, that that's Cain making an emotional demand Right. Rather than like an actually tenable solution. We already got that signaled earlier on when Dioza literally said, you know, he's like, take away her mm-hmm. pills. And yeah. she's like, so then we have a sober junkie. Right. Exactly. Like textually, it's already been flagged. Like that is not how you get. This isn't how this addiction. works. Yeah. And he's micromanaging her addiction in mm-hmm. some ways that aren't helpful. Like he, yes. he can't fix this by just cutting off the supply he can't fix this by just telling her what you're doing hurts me so you have to stop because you love me right and because you promised and it's like none of these things are as black and white as that so i think something for a lot of people it was kind of like hey wait a minute kane like you can't sort of frame it in those simple of terms i think it is important that like kane is saying that to abby and like the narrative is not expecting abby to choose like i think the scene ending before she has to say yes or no to that and leaving it kind of gray i think is actually really important like it isn't Mm -hmm. isn't framed in a way where it feels like the writers think that's how easy it is to quit addiction you know yeah the flip perspective of this you know is that i've also talked to a lot of people in the fandom who sort of resonated to a point of bringing up personal stuff for them because they had themselves had been in Kane's position mm. and were sort of sensitive to like how important it is not to condemn somebody for making a choice that like, I can't be with you. I can't be here in this space while you are in the grip of this addiction, not yeah. just because it's like painful for him to watch it, but because he knows that like, his presence is enabling it. Right. That his attempts at help aren't helping and they are in some ways actively making it worse. So yes. I think that ultimatum, insofar as it's a way of Cain saying like, I'm done doing what I've been doing. Like, I can't help you. I can't fix this. Like, when you're ready, like, and I think it's it's important that he leads out by saying like, I love you. Like, I want to help you through detox. Like, as soon as you are ready for your own reasons within yourself, driven by your own desire to push through this, when you are ready to accept help, like, I will be there. Like, I know what to do. I'm ready. But like, I can't make, I can't take that first step for you. Like, you have to take that first step. And I think that was really 
honest and important and really, really painful to watch. But I think both of those two sides of the argument, like, well, I guess not argument, but like both of those two perspectives on that scene, I think are equally valid and really important. Like there are people who feel like, you know, they've felt more like they're in Abby's shoes or they felt like they're more in Kane's shoes and, and it's a point of pain for them. And I think that's, I think it's important to sort of acknowledge that this is a storyline that part of why it's so important is like, it brings up a lot of stuff for a lot of people and it's starting some really good conversations. The angle of it that I'm much less interested in, in dignifying with substantive critique is the part where people are just grumpy that someone is being mean to their fave. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> this sort of notion that like, Abby's a bad person because her physical suffering makes Cain sad. And it's like, well, that's not uh, a thing. <laughs> okay, yeah, no. I think that is a facile reading of a really messy, complicated... <laughs> and, and conversely, like, the idea that, like... I'm also resistant to the notion that Cain's an asshole for not continuing to exists only to support Abby and what Abby wants to do. Yeah, no, I mean, like, I don't have any personal direct experience with with this kind of situation on either side. But I think the really sort of, like, intractably difficult thing about a situation like that, which I think they do a very good job of honoring, is that, you know, it is a very much like a no-win situation where you have somebody... Right, right, exactly, is, yeah. When somebody who is both psychologically and physically addicted to something... And a person who, like, essentially has been pulled into a kind of, like, toxic codependent relationship with that person and with their addiction. You know, because that's the thing. Like, Kane loves Abby and he's a, has he's in a relationship with Abby. But there are three people in that relationship now. And the mm -hmm. third one is the addiction. You know, because an yeah. addiction does change you. It changes the way that you behave and the decisions that you make. And we've already seen in the beginning, like... Kane has been Kane has been doing things to protect her, to shield her from the consequences of her addiction. And he yeah. almost died because of it. Like he wound yeah. up, you know, in the fighting ring and was seconds away from having his head chopped off by Octavia mm -hmm. because he was protecting Abby from being caught stealing those pills and being put in there herself. And like that was Kane's choice. And we, we all, he has perfectly good reason, you know, we all know the reasons to do it, which is like, she would 100% instantly die in there. You know, she can't fight even if she wanted to. She's not in a, in a sort of like physical position to be able to do it. His chances of surviving are better. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like he can't bear to watch her die, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately he is, by doing that, he is enabling her addiction. He has made mm -hmm. it possible for her to continue to keep using it. All he could do is ask her to promise to quit. Which, like, she won't. You know, she can make that promise and she can mean it. But, like, right. it's not that simple. And so so it's already, you know, it's taking a toll on him and it's taking a toll on them. And you can see, like, a sort of mounting frustration with her. Mm -hmm. Which, again, is, like, not necessarily fair because there's no such thing as fair, I think, in this situation. Yeah. You know, like, what Abby... Yeah. What Abby sort of needs from him and is asking of him and has been for a long time isn't fair to him. And what he needs from her and wants from her, you know, isn't really fair to ask of her because she's not capable of it. But it's understandable. You know, it's it's torture to watch someone you love 
deteriorate like that physically yeah. and mentally to watch them do things that you know that they wouldn't otherwise do to watch them prioritize these pills over him, which I think like, that's what it feels like, even though that's not what it is. Right. Really? You know, like if you're the person who loves them, that's what it feels like. Like I, I really liked that scene and I thought it was really, really well. I did too. I really did too. Um, and I thought that, you know, it's another one of those situations, like every single situation in this entire episode both of them are right and both of them are wrong. You know, like, uh-huh. It just feels like there is no other place in the show, and particularly in this episode, where any single person is meant to be seen as having the correct perspective 100%. So it seems absurd mm-hmm. to me to sort of like read Kane's ultimatum as being somehow endorsed by the show as the right way to deal with addiction. Like, obviously not, you know? Right, right. But like, but from his perspective, I understand, like, I mean, I guess this is, like, hours ago when I said that I felt like there was a kind of, like, underlying sort of emotional similarity between Jasper in his note and Kane here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what, I, what I mean is that they are both coming from, like, sort of fundamentally limited and flawed perspectives, but from that perspective, there's a huge amount of emotional truth at the heart of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily objectively right. But it's emotionally true, you know? And so, so from Kane's perspective, you know, it feels like the pills are more important to her than he is. And Mm -hmm. he knows that he's compromised and he knows that being around her when she's doing these things, like he knows that it's hurting him and he knows that it's hurting her. And I think, you know, framing it as an ultimatum, you know, is questionable, but understandable. Mm Mm-hmm. Realizing that he has to withdraw from her, I think, is right. I think yes. he's right. You know, yes. he can't watch her do this. And, like, it's right both in terms of, like, he has every right as a person to protect himself. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I will always, like, at the end of the day, I believe, no matter what. Like, if you're if you're in a situation where it's, like, staying here is going to hurt me and leaving is going to hurt other people, you always have the right to leave. If you got to mm-hmm. get out, get the fuck out. You know? Yeah. There's sometimes there is no good answer. Sometimes there's no way for everyone not to get hurt. Mm-hmm. And it's not, and it's okay for you to choose to protect yourself. It's okay. Particularly if you have no power to protect the other people. And this is a right. situation where like the only person I think Kane finally realizes the only person that he can take care of is himself. So he has to withdraw, you know? And, and I think he also realizes on some level that that is the only way he can help Abby at this point is take away. Like she's not going to make the choice to give up the pills until there's nowhere left to turn. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, and she can't do it for him. She can't do it because he asks her to, she can't do it because it's the only way to hang on to him. She can't do it because her addiction makes him sad. I think the thing that he understands in this moment and that I think in some ways makes it feel like this is the sort of the rock bottom that you hit before before you pivot, like before you can find claw your way back up. It's like, I think he heard more than he sort of let on that he heard what Dioza was trying to say to him. Like she was, you know, she's being kind of a dick about it. <laughs> you know, like, well, like yeah. she's, you know, because she's Dioza, like, 
The way that she sort of sussed out immediately, like, okay, so Octavia's point of vulnerability is like treating her like a kid, you know, for Kane, in the amount of pain that he's in, his point of vulnerability is her being sort of flippant about Abby. Like it just gets under his mm-hmm. skin that he can't say anything about it, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so she's largely doing it to fuck with him, but she says things that are true and real and land and in their own way are actually helpful. Like it's in some way, it's like what he needed to hear was like, buddy, you can't fix this for her by just taking the pills physically out of her hand like that's not how this works that isn't how a person heals from something like addiction you know like detox being potentially fatal means she's got to be physically and emotionally and mentally prepared to endure the hell she's going to go through to get out the other side and even if she does if she doesn't want to be there for herself Like, because she is done feeling this way, because she is done being driven by this need, and because she wants things to be different, then she's going to be, in some ways, an even worse version of herself, because she'll be in the physical hell that is withdrawal, while still having, having not in any way made headway towards actually kicking that craving. Exactly. Um, it'll still yeah. be the only thing that she's motivated by, the only thing that she thinks about. And she'll be 10 times more, you know, easily manipulated. But, you know, like somebody like McCreary gets a hold of the pills, that's game over. Mm-hmm. You know? Exactly. And that's the, that's the truth that, that Kane didn't want to face because he wanted a simple solution, which was just don't give her any pills. Yeah. He wanted it to be something that he could save her from. Like mm-hmm. he, he wanted there to be a way that he could help, you know, that he could make things better. And I think, I think in some ways there isn't anybody except Dioza in a position in his life right now to give him the kind of like tough love is the wrong word because like he's her hostage and they're not friends, but like, but the kind of like the sort of come to Jesus moment that he needed to have about like, this is a journey that right now, like, She's on this journey alone. There are some really kind of subtle but interesting, I think, Abby Jasper and Abby Octavia little parallels here in terms of this sort of like, <laughs> perhaps the only way in which Abby is anything like Octavia, you know, is <laughs> this sort of like, Abby, Abby is not ready to change yet. And what that means is that Abby can't hear right now, even from people that she cares about, anything that makes her have to look at herself the way she kind of deep down knows that this all looks to other people. Mm -hmm. You know, like she just, she's just not there yet. I think the difference is that I think the way the episode ends, which I want to circle back to with the baby reveal, sets us up for what potentially could be the pivot into how she gets there, how she gets ready. Yeah. How she, how she hits that point. But now in this moment, she is not. And it's because she knows, like the first scene, I think the sort of the escalating repetitions of I did everything I could become more hysterical because both of them know that that's actually not accurate. Or maybe like, I think a more generous reading of that to Abby, but also more tragic is that she did do everything she could in that moment 
because this Abby, addict Abby, junkie Abby, that right. is all she could do. But they both know. Yes. That, yes. At, that she, in other points, in other situations, like if she was pre-addict Abby could have done more. You know, right. so it's not yes. that she's lying. Yes. I did. She didn't. It's not that she didn't do everything she could do. Right, right, exactly. Her yeah, capabilities are compromised. Right. Yeah, and I and I think that he and he kind of concedes that. Like when she's yeah. like, mm-hmm. when she's like, does that mean that you believe me? And he's like, under the circumstances, yes. But exactly. like the thing that really shakes him, I think the thing that you know, one of the sort of details in that scene that I think kind of slaps him in the face with just how big the gap is between her perception of, you know, I mean, like this is all shaped by her continued insistence that she's a better doctor drugged than sober. Mm -hmm. And I think what that, the really important thing for both of them, but particularly for Abby, that that first scene does is show us that that's not true anymore. Maybe Mm -hmm. there was a point at which it was true enough that she could tell herself that was true. Mm-hmm. Maybe for some significant portion of the past six years, that was accurate enough that she could believe it herself mm-hmm. and she could kind of, you know, convince Kane, who was enabling her by continuing to steal drugs for her or to cover for her stealing drugs, like convince them both that that was sort of like a, a premise that they were all granting. And the fact that, like, the th- so the thing that really seems to rattle Kane is seeing, like, he comes in and it's like, the scissors are still hanging out of that girl's body. Like, she didn't sew yeah. the body back up. She didn't even finish the job. Yeah. She just gave up and and She and just collapsed. gave up. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. She lost it. And, yep. and that's the part that is not like Abby. Like, that's the part mm-hmm. where this woman is unrecognizable, mm-hmm. not just to Kane, but to herself. Like, that's why... When she said, I did, I did everything I could, the reason that that is such a painful admission to her is because, like, nobody knows better than Abby herself does the gap between, like, what she wants her hands to be able to do and what her hands are capable of doing. Like, her mind is still in there. She's still herself. You know, she can feel, like, it must have been, like, palpable to her how this situation would be different if she had a different physical relationship to controlling her own body and the movements of Mm -hmm. her own body and, and her skills and abilities. And, and so I think what's significant about, you know, about losing a patient and just sort of the way she's kind of fold, she just snaps. She just, she just sits down on the floor and like, can't do any, she's almost kind of in shock in some way Mm -hmm. is I think that it's, it's the moment where she, where some piece of Abby of the Abby that is still Abby kind of clicks into place and she has to face the fact that like, she's not doing this anymore because it makes her a better doctor. Like she's just, she's just addicted. Mm -hmm. Like her reasons for why she's addicted, her reasons for why, like, don't make me do this now. I've got a whole plan. It's okay. Yeah. I'm going to quit. I just I'll can't quit, quit today. I'll quit after this. I'll quit after this. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'll quit tomorrow. I'll quit tomorrow. Now she has to confront the fact that that's just a thing that she's saying because she isn't ready to quit yet. And all of the sort of arguments she's been telling herself about how she, you know, she has a job to do. They're in danger if she can't do it. She's better at that job when she has the pills, you know, like Kane doesn't understand, like she needs them to be functional. I think 
the purpose that Karina serves for both of them, but for her in particular in this part of the story is like Karina's evidence that that's not accurate. That, mm-hmm. that that is a lie she's telling herself, or if it's not a lie, it's a thing that might once have been true and is no longer. So I yes. think for Abby, I, you know, I think the, the ending that I think we're moving towards, which I think feels just really, um, really right and and powerful and i think the only way i think that this arc i think could and should culminate which i'm really hopeful that we're getting is like she's gonna end up in a position where i think when she makes this choice for herself it's going to be i think because she has to come to terms with the fact that now she's turned a corner and it's making her a worse doctor. Mm-hmm. And that pushing through the pain of withdrawal to get the old Abby back will become necessary in order to do the medical things she has to do, whether that is some combination of figuring out why the Allegius people are dying or potentially related to Gio's baby, mm-hmm. which I'm so relieved we finally get to talk about <laughs> because we've been sitting on that since January. Yes, we when we met we met Ivana at the um, we had drinks with her and Jason and some other people in January and she was pregnant and they were talking a lot about uh, that storyline and yeah, so <laughs> last big thing. Yeah, and it kind of made people like, because, because she was visibly pregnant, because like the actress was pregnant Mm-hmm. You know, I sort of like it was kind of out in the fandom anyway, like this is probably going to be a thing. But it's but I'm so happy that it's like actually a thing in the narrative we can now we can now discuss. But yes. But yeah, but so so I think so there's a lot of things I think coming down the pike that require Abby to be, you know, to break the cycle that she is in that she thinks is unbreakable. Mm-hmm. Because and I think this is this is where the Jasper parallel comes in. Like, you know, I like I had a lot of emotions watching that episode about you know like so many commonalities really really heartbreaking ones between Jasper and Monty and Abby and Kane you know both both for Monty and for Kane that sort of feeling of like I don't like of not understanding why like like we've been through the same things like they've been through hell too but it just trauma just lands differently for different people and sometimes Mm -hmm. it's really hard you know to understand like you know, Kane and Abby went through hell together in the bunker for six years and it had this effect on Abby and it did not have that effect on Kane. And there's pieces of it that he just fundamentally, like, he can't understand because he's never been there. Why can't she just put them down and not pick them back up again? You know, and in the same way that I think for yeah. Monty, one of the things that was really painful for him was like, you know, like he, like he, you know, he had to kill his mom twice. He, you know, he'd like, he'd lost people. He'd been through all of this stuff and he didn't know why that didn't make him want to kind of, why well, he didn't react the same way that Jasper did. And I think for both of them, it gets to this sort of fear, this really human fear that is based, I think, in when your brain doesn't work like that person's brain. So you just straight up can't put yourself in the position of what it would be like to feel like that. I think for Kane and for Monty, it hits this sort of primal place of like, why am I not enough? Yeah. I mean, that's, that was my read on Kane's ultimatum is that I don't mm-hmm. think he 
I'm not sure it was a real ultimatum so much as his last ditch sort of desperation effort to kind of say like, why won't you choose me? Mm -hmm, You know, mm -hmm. like why, why don't you, I love you enough that I would do all these things for you. Why don't you love me enough to put down the pills? Which again, is not the real question, but like, but is also a completely, I mean, if you've, again, if you've like loved someone who is, an addict in that way, I think it's an emotion that is very relatable, you know? And if you, yeah. if you love someone who committed suicide, that's a question that everybody, mm-hmm. that you will always ask yourself, why didn't they love me enough to stay? Yeah. And the answer is like, that wasn't, that wasn't why people commit suicide. That's you know, not like, how it works. Yeah. But that's how yeah. it feels. It feels mm-hmm. like you're being abandoned in some yeah. way. And so I yeah. think, I think you're right. I think for Kane, that's really like the painful realization that Kane had to come to today that I think in this episode that I think that he was really resistant to admitting that he's still grappling with is like, he was trying so hard to save her, to love her mm-hmm. hard enough that he could save her. And it was really, it's painful to realize, like, it doesn't matter how much you love them. And it doesn't matter how much they love you. Love is not the solution to this problem. You Mm -hmm. are not the solution to this problem. And he really, really struggled to the very, very end, you know, to accept that. Yeah. I think there's a lot of reasons why, like we sort of talked about at the beginning, why this episode being, I think, so in infused with the memories of Jasper, I think has a lot of resonance to a lot of these storylines. And I think in in the case of Cain and Abby, I think part of what it's doing is, it's, you know, it's sort of presenting us with this parallel between the situation that both of these two, you know, pairs of people who love each other deeply found themselves in. You know, where like Monty's love for Jasper, like Monty could not make Jasper decide he wanted to live for Monty. Like he could not, he could not do that for him. And Kane cannot make Abby quit taking the pills for him because of, you know, her love of him. I think the difference, the, the sort of the X factor that makes it feel very much like Abby's story is pivoting in a different direction is that Jasper made the choice that Jasper made because, you know, and, and we got to hear his words. We got to hear it in his own perspective because he truly was like, there is like, there is nothing, there is no way to, the cycle is unbreakable. Like there's no way out of this dark place and, and how this is all there is. This is all there is. There will never be anything more than this, you know? And, and so like, so fighting it is, is futile. And I think that, that again, that's, that's the thing that is, that is both factually inaccurate and emotionally true. Like when you're in that place, that's how it feels. It's absolutely how it feels. And that's how Abby feels right now. And I think Abby's frustration at Kane is so shaped by like, Kane doesn't understand that like for her, it's like, this is how it feels to her. Like this is, she feels like, like she feels trapped. She feels powerless and she doesn't understand why he's asking her to do things. She's like, I can't do that. I can't do that. That's not like, I'm stuck. I can't get off this treadmill. Like I, this is, I am here now. This is all there is now. Yeah. He's like, just get off the treadmill and stand on the steady ground. And she's like, can't you see that the treadmill is surrounded by lava? Right, exactly. We live here now. This is where I yeah. am. You know? um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and so I think, but I think what, where, where I feel like this kind of the hopeful moment in this episode that, that makes me 
feel really, I think, positive about where I suspect maybe the next direction of Abby's storyline is going. There's two pieces of it that I think are connected. Is the reminder we get at the very end of the episode that Griffin women do not subscribe to this theory (laughs) that cycles are unbreakable. Griffin women smash shit up. Um, and, And I think, so I think the fact that that moment that sort of flip the script moment that happens at the end of the big cycle breaking comes from Clark. And I think that there is potentially a, a way in which that is linked emotionally to the fact that where we, where we leave Abby at the end of this story is both sort of like thrust into a new doctor situation, but it's also about a mother Exactly. You know, it's also say, about yeah, yeah. Like all the mothers. So, and and the other thing with Clark is too. So there's like the link of like mother daughter with with Abby and Clark. But then also the thing that pushes Clark to that like fuck it, I'm doing solution C is her relationship with her sort of foster daughter. Exactly. So there's another kind of it's like mother daughter yeah. thing. Yeah. So no, I totally agree. So it feels like. The appearance of a baby, you know, like with, and also all the symbolic stuff about like birth and rebirth and blah blah blah, you know, like right. new, like cycle, life, death, right? Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, like now we're cycling. We're we started with Abby with a corpse with death, and now we're sort of like the cycle is like we're on the upswing. She's now now it's going to be birth, you know, like those two things are right. sort of linked. So she's kind of like moving back into the onto the birth side of that um, cycle, and a baby. I mean, and I and I think it. A baby that needs Abby to save it. Because, because Diosa, like, the thing that happens in this scene that happens kind of like almost casually, but like, Diosa confirms that she herself is also sick. Does she? Yeah. Like, cause Kane, like, Kane asked her a couple of times, like, are you sick? Are you sick? But then I thought that, like, I thought that she did in that scene that she said something about, like, maybe, well, okay, maybe she didn't. I now, now I can't. No, because I think, I, I think. I don't think she did. I think she kept saying she wasn't sick. And then Abby said, I assume you're here because because you've already been showing symptoms. And then she said something like yeah. that. And I thought she was referring to the baby. Like, she, oh, yeah. she might have been. Yeah. I, she's like, oh, yeah, I'm having symptoms of my condition. Bang! Here's my belly. That's what I, so I don't think I don't think she's sick. I think so. Well, I guess, I mean, this is this works. So so how I, I should watch it again. But 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 part of how I read that which might or might not be true, is that if whatever is making the Allegis people sick is something that Dioza's fetus also has or is vulnerable to, like if, if, like Abby, you know, like Abby's, Abby's motivation to save murderous criminals is not super high. Is at best middling. I mean, like, it, it is, it's driven by necessity and not by desire. Let's put it that right, way. Right, like, right, right. It's not because she wants McCreary to live on his own merits as a human person. But if there's, like, an innocent fetus who might have this right, thing. Right. Yeah, there's a baby. Like, if, if whatever this thing is, is, um, like, like, and, and maybe Dioza doesn't have it, but she's a carrier for it and the baby has it, or maybe, or maybe Abby she's just like worried it. about the baby. Yeah, or it's, con- or something like, yeah, like, so, yeah, yeah. so the baby, it might not even necessarily be that the baby is connected directly to the sickness, which, which Shaw seemed to sort of take as given was connected to Hithlodium. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so I don't know if that's a thing that, that, we are meant to know, or that's just his speculation, or there's more to it, or whatever. But so, so it, 
it may be that the baby is sort of a second thing and not that the baby is sick. But I feel like if if there's if there's a position where like there's something about Dioza's baby that is sort of like uniquely vulnerable, like sick or susceptible to some kind of, you know, like because of space traveler, blah, 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 he and baby science. But essentially, um, I, I think that knowing what we know about Abby, who in the past has done kind of extraordinary, sometimes wacky, lunatic things to save children, you know, like in season one with like the, you know, the girl with oxygen sickness, like all, you know, all those kinds of things. This is something that's a deep, deep motivator for her. And I feel like the, the, and, you know, and when, and anything surgically, medically, anything that you're doing on a pregnant woman or a baby has like an exponentially higher level of risk associated to it. She can't have shaky hands if she's like, you know, operating on a pregnant woman and she's near the womb. Like she can't, like that's- It's a much lower level of acceptable risk. Exactly. So I sort of feel like we we get this sort of, you know, down, 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 and then slight potential pivot, I think at the end. But I I think it's hopeful that we don't leave that scene on like Kane's back as he storms away and she watches him go. And we don't leave it on her- crying alone in the surgery we leave it on like you know like she gets a moment and we sit there in in her kind of emotional distress and watching her have to kind of like suck it up and then we sort of flip into this whole new thing that she now has to deal with that she's completely unprepared for um and i think that just structurally the fact that that's the journey that her arc takes over the course of this episode means that i suspect what's how what i think i what I think is going to happen is I think that the next couple of episodes for her are going to be about, you know, about Dio's baby, like about the medical storyline. And that's at some point she's going to, she's going to make that decision to that she, that she has to be sober to do this. And I suspect that it might potentially structurally land very nicely if that happens sort of in or towards the end of episode 10 and then in 511, what we get is the flashbacks of like how she got here. Like how did right. she and Kane over those six years in the bunker with what happened to them, with what they saw, with what they've done, how did, how did they end up in this position? You know, and then yeah. I suspect that 12 and 13 are going to be a lot about like the medical mystery being tied in somehow to the end game. Like basically like Abby in the midst of withdrawal with Kane right there by her side, like he promised, you know, to help her solve some unsolvable, mysterious thing, you know, or having to deliver like some kind of like medical emergency that she has to solve to save the day while she's in the throes of extreme detox and what that means for her. Yeah. Um, And, uh, and I think, but I, but I think that we're headed up, in the next two, maybe three, but probably two episodes to what's the thing that's going to happen? Like in the absence of Kane, you know, Kane sort of was shifting temporarily into a different plot um, and her facing this on her own. That's going to spike her into being like, I, I have to, I have to get my old self back. Um, and I think making that decision to be a better doctor um, and to feel like herself again and to save the life of of Dios's child feels like a like a a more emotionally honest and lasting 
motivation for her to do that than just because Kane asked her to, you know, which is what it would have been if she'd said yes in this episode. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, and then also like, you know, working to save Dioza's baby, like it also sort of like, I think reminds her that she's a mother, you know, I think there's some, some sort of like uh, ways that potentially Clark and Clark potentially returning to Shallow Valley and seeing her mother might also kind of remind her like, your world is bigger. You know, there are people, there are, there are more people around you and there's more to you. You know, you're the more than just the doctor. You're also a mother. You have these, you have all these, these roles that you need to, you need to be able to fulfill and like being on the pills doesn't make that possible, you know? So I think that that's another level where the sort of like mother, motherhood and, and being, yes, being a mother and being in connection to motherhood are what could like kick her over into like be the spur that makes her capable of making the choice to finally get clean. But I, I actually, I, you. I actually like, not that I don't love Cabby, but I actually do love that, you know, they sort of textually were like a romantic relationship is not the thing that makes you make this choice. No, I think that's actually really important. I, think I, it's really I important. yeah, I, agree. I totally agree. I, I think it would be dangerous to model for audiences the idea that major things like quitting an addiction are something that that are connected to either either to romantic love or that they indicate the insufficiency of romantic love exactly you know like like mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. if the if the show was presenting as though it were true that abby is only addicted to the pills because she doesn't love Kane enough to quit them. That's a horrifying message to send. Right. Likewise, <laughs> the idea that Kane walking away means he doesn't love Abby enough to stay there with her is also really damaging and destructive. Like those are the kind of messages that, you know, that we absorb in media that make people feel like you have to, you know, that, that, you have to stay in a relationship that's, you know, when you're unhappy or or that, you know. Or that's actively harmful to you because you yeah. love the person, but you can't be with them. No, I thought they did very, very well in, in not, in very, very clearly not putting forward either of those ideas. And I also yes. think that, I mean, I also think it's really important. This is one of those reasons why, although what Kane said to Abby was painful to watch and, and was definitely like not, not like necessarily like. The ideal model <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, of how to talk to an addict or whatever, but uh, one of the reasons why I it sort of worked for me, I think, too, is just because of the. There's another another la- layer of sort of like emotional honesty. There is like this is why your loved ones can't be your therapist. You know, yeah. like yep. your spouse, your partner cannot be your addiction therapist because they are emotionally involved with you. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just like to it, the fact that you have this so much that he is emotionally a part of her addiction in, insofar as addiction is like not just like a physical thing, but a kind of like whole system right. of behaviors that have to right. do with other, that loop in other people as well. Like he is too much a part of this. He's too involved with her. He's too mm-hmm. close to her. This is also happening to him. Is also happening yeah. to him. Like the fact, like it's important and and meaningful that Dios is the one who can look at Abby and say, like, she's an addict. If you take away her pills, she's still an addict. Kane wants to believe she's Abby, 
Abby plus pills is different. If you just take away the pills, then she's just Abby again. That's not how it works. But he emotionally needs to believe that. So, so there's, I think there's, there's also something important there. And it's like, it's not just that romantic love that can't save you. It's that actually the person you're in love with is not the appropriate person <laughs> to mm-hmm, counsel mm-hmm. you through an addiction. Like being loved and supported is very important. Having people tell you, I love you. I care about you. I want what's best for you. I want you to be healthy. I'm scared for you. I'm scared about what could happen to you if you continue to do this. You know, that's very important. Like that is, that is essential to recovery, but that can't be the person who sits there and walks you through all the steps, both sort of like physically and psychologically of how you need to get there. And so I think I think there is actually something important in seeing that Cain loving her also means that Cain says the wrong things to her, you know, like that he isn't the person who can save her for so many reasons, both because love can't save you and also because he doesn't have the tools, you know, he doesn't have right. the the perspective, whatever. Like there's so many reasons why the people closest to you can't be the people who like can't be the only people there to save you. And why like, again, like, your th- <laughs> and like you can't be in a relationship with your therapist you can't be friends with your therapist like there are reasons right, right. why and it's because like you can't be emotionally involved with somebody and also do that 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 job you know so I think- yeah like somebody with some distance needs to look at this and be like here's where we're at you know exactly and, think- and be able to say like this is what you're doing like be able to see you clearly and say this is what you're doing and like hear all the stuff you need to be able to throw at them without em- reacting emotionally to it like Cain, yeah, like yeah. there's a lot of you know like, i think I would be curious to see the flashbacks, but I think, you know, it seems pretty clear to me that, like, for Abby, it started as pain management and it became a kind of, like, emotional pain management, you know? And so she's got a lot of stuff she has to work through to face to get off of that. And, like, there's some of that stuff that you just can't say to people who love you because it will hurt them too much. And then you'll see it that it'll hurt them and then you'll draw back and whatever. Like there's all sorts of reasons why like there are certain conversations that you have to have with your therapist that you can't have with your partner or your, you know, your mother or whatever. Um, <laughs> they're not interchange. They're not interchangeable relationships. I think it could be really interesting if, you know, like, like it's, it's the fact that like, Kane doesn't have any affection for Dioza and she doesn't have any affection for him, even though there is like some degree of like potential like respect there on some level. Um, but it's because they're not, they don't like each other that she can be super blunt with him. And, and even though he, it really gets under his skin and upsets him, but he hears it enough that it lands. And so something I think could be really interesting on a, on a reverse level you know, and maybe maybe it's Dioza. Maybe it's over the course of like of them having scenes together when she's examining her. But it also could be somebody really out there, like Vincent or McCreary. Like if the person for Abby that she's like, I don't really give a fuck about you. So like, you know, and they're like, I don't give a fuck about you. I'm just gonna say stuff. Well, I'm just gonna say stuff. You know, like maybe like like in in those kind of antagonistic conversations could be a a germ of something that she needs to hear, even if it's just as simple as like you know, not wanting to end up like somebody like McCreary or Vincent, who's entirely driven by their darkest, most destructive inner selves, you know, yeah. and, mm-hmm. and seeing... You know who would be fascinating in that role is Murphy. Well, and we know that, like, like so Murphy, Murphy comes back to, like, there's something about 
Shallow Valley and Murphy starting a fire in Shallow Valley in the next couple episodes, I think I saw in the little episode description. But we also do know that, like, at some point, like, one thing that has been alluded to that hasn't happened yet um, is there is some kind of mention or something from Murphy of, like, a reminder that he has a relationship with and cares about Abby. I think one thing that I've been wanting that I haven't seen that felt a little bit in some ways of a glaring omission in this episode. Um, and, and I'm hoping that it, that it's not like a season three, you know, everyone's in the same room, but not talking to each other kind of thing again is I'm surprised that we haven't seen Raven with Abby yet. And cause like Raven mentioning Kane, like Kane's different, like Raven, like, Raven does not have a relationship with Kane. Like, I've been waiting since season two, Raven and Kane to, or even season one, to have, have even, to even exchange dialogue, which still so far they have not, although, like, he was talking to her in this episode, which was progress, and she talked about him. Like, so she, so she has seen enough of him to acknowledge and recognize that, like, he has changed because she's seeing him with Gioza. So either Abby is, is quarantined and, like, never interacts with anybody else, which is totally possible. Or, you know, or I don't know, but it, but if I feel like, like both Raven and Murphy are people who I think could have interesting, helpful perspectives on, you know, on where Abby is at, where they're like close enough, like that they know her and they know from hiding from your pain and defense mechanisms and things like that, but are not so emotionally entangled that it costs them like it costs Kane just to sort of be in the room with it you know like yeah, Raven had exactly. the same physical pain manifestations that Abby had you know and and she dealt with them differently but she's in a position to understand more of it than almost any other person yeah I mean she knows what it's like to want to just like avoid the pain as much as possible yeah and she knows what it's like to kind of hit that rock bottom and to dig down and find some reason you want to like change the way that your life is going. So, so yeah, so that would be, that would be very interesting. All right. Well, we've been going for almost four hours. (laughs) (laughs) Minus Uh, uh, some pee breaks and the dog barf incident. I was going to say some of this is a long stretch of silence. That was you cleaning up after your vomiting dog. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But And yet it has still been a very epic conversation. Um, We're back next week, right? There's not another break right away. We are. Okay. Yes. I think we are um, episode 508, which is... Uh, How We Get to Peace. How We Get to Peace. And that this is the one that had the fake name. This is the one that was called something else. Yes. And then Um, they revealed that it was a fake name. It was called Secret Weapon, I think. And then it was, yeah, How We Get to Peace. Uh, yeah, that, and then we will have a break over the, the week of, because it's, it's 4th of July. I right, think, right, right. Tuesday. <sighs> yeah. And then back the week after that. And then is that the last? That's the last. That's the last break. That's the last break. break. So there's a week break for um, 4th of July, and then there's a, and then I think it runs straight through yeah. after that. So yes, next week, do. yeah, next week, 508, How We Get to Peace. And uh, in the meantime, Hope you enjoyed this massively long podcast. <laughs> Even by our standards. <laughs> uh, Bye. Good times. <laughs>